This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the owl, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Hi, I'm Jen. I love watching horror movies. I also have PTSD and I go to a lot of therapy. I'm Lara. I have anxiety and depression and love having this shit scared out of me. <laughs> Wait, what? I'm Mike. I'm a therapist and I love riffing on horror movies. We love watching horror movies. We love them for how much they scare us and for how much they help us. Because we love talking about mental health, a.k.a. how crazy we are, and the role <laughs> the horror genre can play in our wellness and self-care, we've started a brand new podcast called Psycho Analysis. Each episode, we'll talk about a movie and how it relates to a different topic in the mental health field. Our episodes drop every other Thursday starting on July 9th on the Consequence Podcast Network. Listen to find out how, how horror can, can heal. heal. <laughs> Consequence Podcast Network. I don't want to scare anyone, but I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there, some sort of demented creature, surviving in the wilderness, full grown by now. Some folks claim they've even seen him right in this area. From the cold, chilly cabins of Camp Crystal Lake to outer space, we are Halloweenies! Greetings and welcome to Halloweenies, a Jason Voorhees podcast. Presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. Uh, well, I think we're going to go with, with just uh, three people this week. We were supposed to have Tanya from the Nightlight Podcast on as our fourth guest, or I should say our fourth panelist, but uh, she was called away at the last second. We do hope to have her on in the future. So let's get started. Well, you know, here. you know, um, I, I, I never, I never really talked about a new beginning before, and, but it certainly looks like fun. 
Mike Rothman, uh, I think I think it's just going to be Mike Vanderbilt, myself, and I, and, and Mac. It could be time around. I don't know. It could be a little, a little you know, it's Four's company, <laughs> not not as much as like Three's company, but definitely Four's company because I think if you have like you know enough like people uh, that could be you know sitting there and talking about a Mike, movie that you could be really fun, you know, like I mean Mike, I know that we said that Jason was going to die in Friday for Friday. We appreciate Mike. But, we appreciate your help, but listen, I mean, and I said I was going to probably be in like keep the, it going. Long. Leave us alone. Well, if that's the way you feel, guys, forget it. Just forget it. But I think you're really out of line. That's right. We've got great bits here at Halloweenies. (laughs) (laughs) Round the clock. Coming in hot. Uh, But again, welcome to Halloweenies with Jason Voorhees podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. Uh, listen, gang. We thought we closed the book on Friday the thirteenth with the final chapter, but we discovered that there was a new beginning waiting for us. And this episode, we will be breaking down, singing along to, and dancing along with 1985's Friday the Thirteenth Part Five: A New Beginning, aka Friday the Thirteenth: A New Beginning. Yes, the title's nightmare continues. But before we spend this episode. Discussing the fifth Friday the 13th for July the 13th. Let's go around and talk about the first time we saw Friday the 13th Part 5. And hell, let's decide once again on what the title of this movie actually is. Let's start off with uh, the only other blood relation to me on this particular episode. Hi, this is Mackenzie uh, Ex Machina Gerber, and I am... Ready to talk about this. I have, I feel like the first time I saw this was probably on USA, Justin. Do you think that's correct? Has to be. Like USA Up All Night or something and uh, heavily edited. Uh, not that I feel like this movie's already heavily edited, but um, I, I, I feel like I watched a lot of these in order. So um, I had no clue about the ending and I, and, and regardless of that, I still didn't love it. Uh, <laughs> throughout the film, I, even when I thought uh, Jason was really there, um, but yeah, this I, I probably watched this when I when I was like eight, um, eight or nine. I, I would think uh, that was when I was probably being introduced to all these these flicks, and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 all I got. Let's go further south in Chicago, Illinois, to the third person on this episode. All right, this is Mike the Enchilada Vanderbilt. And Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, is an important film in my love of horror because I believe it is the first Friday the 13th movie that I ever saw. And I saw it on Showtime (laughs) in about 1988, I'm guessing. Uh, Me and my mom and my sister, summer night, about 9 o'clock, it was playing on Showtime. You know, me and my sister were out, you know, hanging out with the neighborhoods, kids, you know, come home when the streetlights are out, watch Friday the 13th. And as I've, as I've explained before in the podcast, we're very disappointed at the end to find out that it's not Jason. So that Saturday, we rented the original Friday the 13th, and we're once disappointed to find out that it's not Jason. <laughs> <laughs> and then you rented uh, Jason Goes to Hell, and you were kind of happy to see that it was Jason, and then it wasn't really Jason most of the time. Uh, for me, this, again, yeah, USA... Once again, it's the touchstone to so many uh, moments, horror movie moments, especially of my of my life. 
And yeah, the first time I saw this movie was definitely during a USA marathon of the films. Incredibly edited. Incredibly edited down, like you said, Mac, especially oh, yeah. considering the fact that this thing was already butchered by the MPAA. I mean, there are character tone, character shifts that happen that we don't see on USA because there's nudity. I'm thinking about the uh, the Robin character who um, has a bit of a uh, redemption as opposed to Larry Zerner's Shelley in Friday the 13th Part 3 whose bitch appears, whose bitch is cut, which makes him a sweeter person than, than the USA version. Anyway, I digress. We'll get into that later on. This, this, this franchise is a, is a lot of fun to talk about. And um, I was very confused when I first saw this. I didn't initially know right away that it was Roy who was the killer at the very end, at least when the reveal happens. But we can talk about some of the directorial, uh, quote-unquote, decisions that were made uh, throughout this movie later on. Totally, was never totally. a big fan of it, even back then. Even as a, as a, as a young teen... It felt cheap, like I could somehow differentiate between <laughs> the fifth movie <laughs> and the and the four that preceded it and the and the ones that followed. But personally, you know, obviously this is not going to be one of my favorite entries. But in terms of discussion, I kind of like these lesser known or lesser favored entries because they haven't been discussed or dissected, pun intended, uh, to death. <laughs> I mean, you don't you don't hear a lot of takes about the fifth entry of this series. You hear a lot of takes, obviously, about. The original Friday, a lot of takes about Final Chapter, even Part 2 and 3 for what they introduce, the sixth one for how funny it is, the seventh one for how really, really cut down that movie is. The MPAA really, truly ruined that movie, in my opinion. The eighth one for the Manhattan aspect. And, I mean, all of these things have something to talk about or have been discussed to death. I got a lot of puns today with dissections and death and everything <laughs> else. And uh, so I'm actually really looking forward to talking about this. Uh, again, it's just going to be the three of us this time um, because our, our guest unfortunately had to drop out, but uh, we hope to have her on in the future. I, I do feel that part five is having a bit of a renaissance because these days it seems that uh, within the hashtag horror community, people are always looking for a maligned, uh, usually just plain bad sequel to Stan for lack of a better word. And I think Friday the 13th Part 5 has become uh, one of those movies. Just because it's so odd. Well, I think what happens is, I I tweeted about this. I love when people mention their tweets, but I'm going to do it anyway. I said, this is what happens with movies when they come out. If it's really maligned when it comes out, everybody hates it, right? Right. And then about 10 years later, (laughs) there's a period of, you know, actually that was pretty good. And then 10 years after that, it becomes, actually, this was the best movie. This, I mean, without fail. I feel like in 10 years we're going to be hearing about how New Beginning is actually the best one. And, and to be fair, some of the responses that we've had on social media, this is uh, a lot of people's favorite entry in the series. So I'm, I'm really <laughs> interested in, in discussing this movie and uh, trying to suss out just what it is that makes it tick for so many people. And to be fair, there are some things I do like about this movie. I mean, this isn't, this isn't like we're talking about I don't know. This isn't Jason Takes Manhattan. No shots to the Jason Takes Manhattan stands out there. But, um, again, we'll get into that later on. I'm not sure how the two of you felt revisiting this. Uh, Mac, any initial thoughts when you when you revisited? Yeah, you know, we watched this fairly recently uh, over at Mike's, I think. Um, and it must have been for our Friday the 13th uh, over the last year or so. And I, I have a lot of fun watching this movie. It, it's, it's by no means just flat out awful to me there are certain moments in it that are but 
I always I kind of liked it for it being such an oddball film. Um, you know, I obviously I don't really love the reveal, and I think the, the ending's incredibly mishandled. But uh, there are some moments that work, and I kind of like uh, the the kids. It's it's such a weird weird movie it's like um just in terms of like all of the the kids and um uh just whether or not you're you're supposed to uh, what they were thinking in terms of like connect connection with the 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 kids and whatnot you know what i'm saying like um because everybody they all have seem to have like problems and then there's home so like you're already empathetic for all these kids so in many ways i feel like there's a lot of good guys that you actually care about that get killed in this film so I found myself connecting more to these people in a way than I did the last one, the last film, and I, and, and, and I love uh, the final chapter. But uh, yeah, so it's it's really weird. I it's definitely entertaining to watch. Uh, it's not it's not uh, seven or eight uh, where where it's just kind of like a slog. But um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm definitely not saying it's the best of the franchise at all. But uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, there's there's something there, and I'm I'm excited to talk about the things that work in this one. Mike, uh, we can keep talking about this movie. Um, and we should for the next couple hours. Let's keep let's keep it going. Uh, <laughs> let's go into our next category, in which we talk about the news of the day when it comes to Friday the Thirteenth. In a section we like to call, uh, let me see what the uh, the top of this board says. Oh, Steve Christie's bulletin board. Hello, who's that? Hi. What are you doing out in this mess? Well, gents, I regret to inform everybody once again, not a lot of news on the Friday the 13th front uh, when it comes to any you know movies that are officially in development, still in uh, the trial hell that it's been in for a while uh, with Victor Miller and, and Sean S. Cunningham. Hopefully that comes to an end. And hopefully, you know, in the next year or so, we're actually able to make movies again, which would be great. <laughs> so let's keep optimistic about that. I do have a little bit of news here, though, uh, about Kevin Bacon. Uh, when he was promoting his new movie, You Should Have Left, with uh, the great newspaper USA Today, he spoke a little bit about Friday the 13th. Now, this doesn't happen very often. He doesn't oh, really do wow. a lot of interviews yeah. and talking about this movie, but he, he went on for quite a bit. Well, first of all, he says he's much more interested in the, in the horror movies like, you know, Rosemary's Baby and Psycho. And, you know, of course, you know, not, not a huge slasher fan. I wasn't surprised to read that. But here's what he had to say about um, his experience. So he says, uh, when I was on Friday the 13th, it's not that I was hungry to be in a horror film. It was just that I was hungry. I just needed to work. And about his death scene, which we've kind of heard about, he says, I was on my knees underneath the bed with my neck in a really uncomfortable angle. And then the fake neck and chest were built out from there. I remember them saying, listen we got to get this right because we only have one of these necks. So there was somebody underneath the bed whose job it was to push the arrow through, somebody underneath the bed whose job it was to pump the blood, and I had to pretend like it was happening to me. It was a lot of stuff to think about, and if I remember correctly, the pump on the blood pack actually broke, and the blood pumping person had to grab it and actually blow through the tube to make the blood spurt up. So the fact that we got that was really kind of remarkable. Uh, fun anecdote from Mr. Bacon. He also goes on to say that the number one picture fans give him to sign throughout the last 40 years is not anything from, you know, I don't know, Apollo 13 or something of that ilk. It's the photo of the arrow going through his neck. And he says, uh, I'm an easygoing person when it comes to people wanting autographs. I'm, I'm glad they still would want an autograph for me, but 
It gets a little rough after a while signing a picture of yourself dead and bloody. They keep coming back <laughs> with that one. <laughs> so, Mr. Bacon, uh, we salute you. What a career. And I, but unfortunately, I do hear that you should have left is, uh, is not good. It's more like you should have left this alone. You should have left this script alone. That's what I hear. And uh, Kevin Bacon's <laughs> kind of a stealth horror icon, huh? With at least three well-known popular flicks under his belt. Tremors. Tremors, yes. definitely. Uh, Stir of Echoes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Friday Hollow the 13th. Man. And Hollow, Hollow Man. There you go, yeah. I think David Kep also uh, wrote and directed the uh, Stir of Echoes, too, right? In addition to You Should Have Left. Yes, he did. That's right. Uh, interesting career for David Kep. He's been working steadily in some franchise movies. I'll give him credit for that. The other bit of news that Mike Mike Vanderbilt and I hopped over to, to Max podcast, The Losers Club, and on their Patreon uh, episode for, I guess it would have been last month, They there was a right. brief episode on iJason. Uh, so we should talk about that briefly here. I mean, in mid-June, Stephen King, if you've ever heard of him, Stephen King, <laughs> tweeted the following, and, and the horror community exploded. The best novel idea I never wrote, and probably never will, is I, Jason, the first person narrative of Jason Voorhees. Actually, he wrote Voorhees on accident, by the way. And his hellish fate. Killed over and over again at Camp Crystal Lake. What a hellish existential fate. Just thinking about the legal thicket one would have to go through to get permissions makes my headache. And my heart, that too. But gosh, shouldn't someone tell Jason's side of the story? Blumhouse could do it as a movie. And my, my take on this... You know, again, listen to the episode. Vanderbilt and I really went. We talked a lot about. It. I mean, I think it's definitely tongue in cheek. But I th- let's let's hear from Mac, who we have not heard from necessarily about this about this topic. I, I, I hearing the idea that you know Jason's going through hell. He's getting killed over and over and over again at the camp. I mean, I that that's like an interesting idea. But wow, I, I think it's a horrible idea to <laughs> to tell anything from the first person of a of a villain, you know, it's like when you try to make people see things from the side of, you know, Leatherface, um, like, oh, he had a bad upbringing. Ugh. It turns like, into a Rob cares? Zombie movie. Like, it's, it's just <laughs> like, it just neuters these, 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 these terrifying villains. Like, this is not, you know, this isn't Sense and Sensibility. We don't need the, uh, the drama. We don't need, you know, another take from a different kind of genre. Like, it's, it's a slasher film. Let Jason be Jason, you know? Although I have to say, and we didn't discuss this on the Losers Club episode, uh, I am curious what Jason Voorhees would have thought of this Cat Roy uh, impersonating him and trying to take on his mantle. That's a great point. Like, like when he came back from the dead, it's kind of like, you know, you discover that uh, it reminds me of, of course, Days of Our Lives when when Roman, the the original Roman came back and it turned out that the person who had taken over the role was uh, actually an imposter. Uh, I don't know if anybody remembers that legendary uh, sequence in Days of Our Lives from the 90s. Thank you very much. I was sick as a child, and when I would be sick, I would watch Days of Our Lives with my mother. Um, I Wow, we really went off on a Days of Our Lives I, tangent somehow. To be, to be fair, I'm sure somebody from Fighter to 13th ended up on uh, Days of Our Lives because there were a lot of connections to soap operas that oh, would yeah. appear in the cast. Especially the final chapter. I mean, forget it. As a matter of fact, you know what I saw the other day in terms of television, I should have mentioned this I was watching, um, I, I just have the, the network cozy on when I turn the TV on so I can avoid the news landscape every time I turn the TV on, which, which is with its fresh horrors that I don't want to necessarily hear about every single second of my life. 
and Cozy always plays Highway to Heaven with Michael Landon. Oh, that's got a <laughs> that has a great Halloween episode. It though. does. Have you ever it's, seen? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I have. It does. With, uh, I was a teenage werewolf. Yeah. Great stuff. That yeah. was one of my mom's favorite episodes. She liked that show. Uh, but she loved that. I remember that watching that Halloween episode. I feel like it, they re-aired it every year. Yeah, it's been on. You can find some clips on YouTube. It's a lot of fun. But on this particular episode, the TV turned on, and I see an actor from the House on Sorority Row, and her husband's played by Mark from Friday the 13th Part 2. He's walking around. So I thought, there, yeah, there's a little... little uh, oh, wow. There's some Friday the 13th news for you, I guess. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Mark in 1987's yeah. episode of <laughs> Highway to Heaven with Michael Landon. Um, so yeah, oh, not, boy. yeah in terms of the Jason uh, the iJason thing uh, yeah, Blum has to do this movie I know Jason Blum is, def- is desperate to get the rights to Friday 13th and, and I would, I would not be surprised if it ends up in his hands and, and um, I, I, I don't oh, want to get into that away. right now stay I don't want to get into that too much right now um, one last bit we should discuss though because this is Halloweenies and um, <laughs> is you know, there was a lot of rumors about delays and whatnot, but officially Halloween Kills is being pushed back to next year, and Halloween Ends is be- also being pushed back another year. So we're going to get Halloween Kills uh, in October of 2021 and Halloween Ends in October of 2022. Personally, I think they should just let them burn. Just let them burn. Let them burn, as, as we've learned in the burn. teaser trailer. I was just going to say that the paramedics were racing to rescue these films to make sure that they came out when they were supposed to. And they actually listened to us as we yelled, let it burn, <laughs> oh, no. let them burn. And they pushed it off a year. Um, I, yeah, I just, you know, that teaser trailer is just... People are... People are are moved by it. People but are I don't want, you know, that's with we it. should really this moved. should be a special episode. We should actually hold um, off this discussion too much, you know. I don't want I also, <laughs> I know, I also want to upset people with 2 hours left in the episode. Sure. But I do want to make I do want to make a point that I made uh, to you guys earlier that I have I rarely do this, but I did read all the script notes or uh, from a screening of Halloween 2, which is out there. You can find it. Yeah, we've we've, we've kills, discussed that rather. too. No, no spoilers and, obviously. No, yeah, there's lot, but there's no spoilers here, but there'll be spoilers online, so be warned. But if they pull this off, this may be my favorite Halloween sequel of all time. You know what? And, and reading it, thinking, Mike, thinking about you know, the, the I'm plot, glad though, that you're I'm on. I'm not surprised that you're saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it is what I read is pretty wild, and if they pull it off, it'll be. I mean, on a, a low bar is set, yes, but it could be my favorite, if not overall, the best Halloween sequel. Marone, Marone. Mac, you were going to say something? I was just saying that I'm really glad that Mike is on here because, uh, you know, we, we need a balance. We need a balance between Justin and I and Mike and Mike on, in, our, in our, our outlook for the new Halloween films <laughs> because uh, I know that some fans, uh, they're, they're, they're not too happy that we... Uh, we didn't like the last half of the entire Halloween franchise. <laughs> well, you know, we've talked about this too. Like, my thing is, if, if your name is if your name is Malik Akkad, or you know, um, I don't know, David Gordon Green or Dan McBride, and, and I can understand if you want to get upset with us online, but otherwise, if you didn't produce these movies and you have a different opinion than us, that's fine. If you like them, that's great. Like I've said before, I like Halloween Four for God's sake, you know. But just let's all. It's all just cool off, all right? Don't take it so personal if we don't like a, a movie out there, you know? If we don't like the, the third reboot of a, of a horror series, you know? So 
Anyway, those are always the best. Those are always the best ones, though. The yeah. third reboot is always the best. That's one. what I say. Third time's a charm in terms of getting the stakes right. <laughs> um, for God's sakes, you know what? Speaking of H's, let's move on to another H. Two of them, in a section that we call Higgins Haven. I can't get the door open. There's something behind it. Oh, I smell something burning. Here, take this. Let me do it. <laughs> No wonder somebody put this chair there. Something is burning. Lights aren't working either. Oh, real smart. What's going on here? All right, so for this section, we're going to talk about the history behind this movie, including the you know the writers and the director involved. So after Paramount insisted once again that the final chapter was to be the final chapter in the Friday the 13th series... <laughs> Once again, they remembered how much money could be made off of an inexpensive movie like a Friday the 13th movie and said, you know what, let's make some more of these. So less than a year later, Friday the 13th New Beginning was released to theaters. (laughs) So cynical. Yeah, but incredible. 11 months later, it was out. Like, it's over. 11 months later, here's another one. Uh, But before that happened, the movie, you know, has to go in production, right? So... I've got, I've got some good uh, deets here about the writers and directors on this particular film. And I know it's a, Mike It's I know a Mike weird Vanderbilt. little bunch. What's that, Mike? It's a weird little bunch of people it is. involved it's a weird combo. in this movie. And I know Mike has a lot to say about this director, but the director they chose was, <laughs> was Danny Steinman, who co-wrote and directed this film. Danny Steinman was a real double threat, folks. I mean, he wrote and directed the Linda Blair movie, Savage Streets. And, uh, of course, <laughs> and I, I think... Far be it for me to judge that Mike Vanderbilt has some information on an X-rated adult film he directed called, and, and wrote, by the way, called High Rise. Did you do some research now, on this, Mike? I, I did a little bit of research on this. Uh, it appears the, the journey to Friday the 13th Part 5 starts with a, a young man named Danny Stone. Uh, Danny Stone, completely unrelated to Danny Steinman. Completely different guy. Sure. But he had a father named Herbert Steinman who uh, sold his pharmaceutical company to dabble in the movie business. Uh, he uh, made a killing, uh, or made quite a bit of money when he uh, bought the Umbrellas of Cherbourg uh, in 1964 for American distribution. And his father helped produce a film called The Pawn Broker in 1964. which Sidney was Lumet's Pawn Broker. Y- yes. Wow. And this is where Danny Steinman, or Danny Stone, com- two completely different people. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> First uh, saw what the MPAA or what uh, you know the American Puritanism could do to a film. Hmm. It, not, I don't want to go into too much detail on this, but there's a great interview with Danny Stone, not Danny Steinman, on uh, the Rialto Report, which a uh, great website, great podcast that offers a history of adult cinema. Well, Danny Stone uh, became buddies with uh, Andy Warhol and independent filmmakers in New York, and. He went off to Spain to star in uh, the Hallucination Generation, a drug exploitation film, kind of the opposite of Rick Dalton. This is where he got his start as an actor, <laughs> but he really wanted to be a filmmaker. And he, he got into com- he came back to New York, got into commercials, and this, uh, when Deep Throat was released in 1973, I believe, he saw. Let me check my money. abacus here and make sure that's right. <laughs> He saw he saw money he saw money to be made and put into production a film called High Rise, which uh, starred Harry Reams, the classic 
Classic actor. Birth name. Great actor. Uh, birth name. Uh, <laughs> I've got other birth name. Uh, and uh, a woman named Tammy Trevor. But Harry Reams, who is you know a porn legend, still calls it, or I'm sorry, adult cinema legend, calls High Rise one of his favorite films that he ever worked on. And there's uh, High Rise is worth watching if you can track it down. But there's a Harry Reams segment involves uh, there's, he's a, a collector of toy trains, and the only reason that happened is because they were shooting it in a commercial studio, and they could use all the children's toys that they wanted in the film. That is disturbing. So Dan, <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, very, very, very bizarre. Really bizarre yeah. And of course, it's this is very... not to be confused with the the J.G. Ballard novel High Rise. A com- completely different. <laughs> about a young a young woman who is looking to rent an apartment and uh, engages in uh, various sexual escapades along the way, and also stars, although the name is not mentioned in this interview, somebody who made it big on American television. So it could possibly be somebody from Days of Our Lives. Once it has to be Days of Our Lives, let's be honest. Now, well, the fun thing about that title, High Rise, is that it's, a, it's what we call a double entendre. Yes. <laughs> I believe there's a good... Uh, let me look at the Film School 100 here. It's <laughs> like the, uh, the, the tag... The tagline for 1973's High Rise was the highest rise of all. And wow. I think <laughs> I think you can, I, I, no no joke, I think you can kind of understand where Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, comes from when you read the story of High Rise and when you see the film. Danny Steinman, or Danny Stone, uh, however you want to call him, was uh, a, what do I want to say, a protege sort of of Andy Warhol, at least a contemporary. He became friends, and I think... What you see in Friday the Thirteenth, Part Five, A New Beginning, is that idea that that Andy Warhol sort of John Waters idea of just casting a bunch of weirdos, a bunch of interesting people, a bunch of offbeat people, and I, he did that with High Rise, and you can kind of see it with Friday the Thirteenth, Part Five. Well, here's some other information about him. I think he probably got this because of The Unseen, which is an, uh, I think a 1980 horror movie. Mac, you'll be know you'll be interested in this. It uh, starred Barbara Bach, of course. Barbara Bach, Ringo Starr's wife, still after all these years, and she was wow. in the Spy Who Loved Me as the spy who loved it, Bond. It, yeah, and the unseen is not uh, a great film, but it does per- it does feature a terrific performance from Sidney Lasick or Lasick or Lasick who most people remember as Franklin from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. I thought you were going to say Franklin from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I got really excited. <laughs> I no, know. He, he I was, was like, also, whoa, i got to watch this. <laughs> he was also in One Flew Over to Cuckoo's Nest and Carrie. Good character actor, but he uh, in, a, in a kind of a dull film, he really goes for it, and it turns into a memorable performance. And also Stephen First yeah. from Animal House. Yeah, speaking of Kevin Bacon. In a, very, in a very odd performance as... The Unseen. The titular Unseen. He's the Unseen? <laughs> he is the Unseen. I just figured and this title was like a demon or something. Stephen First. Uh, no, it's Stephen First. And when you see him, you kind of you kind of wish you didn't. Oh, dear. Well, oh, gosh. I feel like that I will inevitably... I can't believe that's not it's, on Amazon Prime, like way in the, in, the, <laughs> in the depths of Amazon Prime. But maybe it is. We should probably seek this I out. Found, no, I found it on YouTube. If you want to see oh. Danny Steinman's The Unseen... Which he uh, he was he was always bitter about that because he claims that the the studio took it away from him and he wasn't able to complete his vision. But again, you see that sort of Danny Steinman touch of casting interesting characters, character actors in uh, major roles. 
Mac, would you agree that there are some interesting slash curious uh, characters in A New Beginning along the lines of a John Waters movie or a, just something of that era? Of that oh. Ilk? oh, yeah. I feel like this entire cast is just like misfit heaven, you know? I would agree. Well, <laughs> another co-writer... I, I, there's not much to say. Listen, another co-writer on this project is returning champion Martin Kittrosser, who co-wrote Friday the 13th Part 3 with his wife, Carol Watson. We talked a lot about his career when it comes to script supervising in that episode, so you should definitely go back to that, uh, our Part 3 episode and check it out if you haven't already. Yeah. And if he you haven't, what's wrong good, with you? He became a good friends with Tarantino, it would appear. At least co- worked with him quite yeah, a few times. I think he's worked with him, I think from Reservoir Dogs on. I think he's always worked with him in, in, in a script supervisor capacity, so... Not a bad gig to have for the last 30 years for Mr. Kid Rusher. Yeah. And not to get too deep on it, but that's Hollywood. Like, you might write a Friday the 13th movie, which is a major franchise from yep. a major studio, and never really become a, a big-time writer, but just end up working in some other faction because there's all sorts of jobs. Well, even some of the, the actors in this movie just went on to do other things in the industry. Like They, they weren't necessarily just going to be actors forever. They found other fields to get into when the work dried up, and we'll definitely get into that in a couple sections from now. But uh, of note, before we move on, of course, the third and final co-writer on this movie is David Cohen, who, of course, went on to who, who of course, went on to write and direct uh, 1986's Hollywood Zap. May I please read the description for Hollywood Zap? <laughs> yes. Okay. This is literally the, the the tagline: Story of two friends, one searching for his father the other searching for the ultimate sexual video game competition. <laughs> 1986's Hollywood Zap. Mike Vanderbilt, I have a, I'm going to say there's a 60-40 chance you've seen this movie. Hollywood Zap is not as interesting as the description would lead you to believe. <laughs> it's actually kind of dull, but again, it, it, I think, uh, what is it, uh, David Cohen. David Cohen and Danny Steinman kind of found each other because Hollywood Zap, which of course written and directed by uh, David Cohen, features a bunch of offbeat characters mm. just doing offbeat stuff. So you see a little bit of that touch in Friday the 13th Part 5. Uh, it, I, I don't know if it's worth checking out, but it does feature... <laughs> Glowing recommendation. My, ah. it, it does feature one of my favorite character actors... As Kong, uh, a uh, video game uh, aficionado, uh, what's his name? You may recognize him from. Oh yeah, Tony Cox. Oh he yeah, is Tony a, Cox, uh, horse. Yeah, he is a little person who uh, you've seen in Bad countless. Santa. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Me, and myself, and is, Irene. Me, myself, and Irene. He is terrific. He uh, he comes towards the end, but he uh, he is terrific in. Hollywood Zap. Well, well, Mac, Hollywood Mac Zap. I challenge you to find Hollywood Zap on YouTube, watch it, and uh, upload all of your thoughts as soon as you see it, Mac. I oh, I, I will definitely check this out. But I, I you know, I'm reading the uh, description of another film that he that Cohen wrote called The Treasure. And mm. let me read this to you. It says, three kids stumble across a treasure map and danger ensues. In the same vein as The Goonies, except made on a budget of about $60. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's a was that an actual? That's a funny tagline. That is that's no, that's not the tagline. That's just the description on IMDb. <laughs> oh, uh, we probably said like three kids. Look, oh, one searching man. for his father, the other two searching for the ultimate sexual video game competition. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
right, so the same plot for a different movie. Let's kind of dive in here. I really want to talk about the writing and direction of this movie a little bit more when it comes to like the plot mechanics. I don't think we've really discussed the plot mechanics too much with the first four movies because, I mean, more or less they are, here are the kids, here's the killer, the killer kills the kids. You know what I mean? But yeah. I do have some notes about this movie. My first question to the, both of you, Mac, I, I post it to you first. And now you kind of have to go back in time because you, you saw this movie, you know, 25 years ago. But <laughs> what point did you realize that Roy was the killer when you were first watching this? When did you I, think that he was probably the killer? I thought he was the killer when um, the sheriff shows the picture to Pam in the really? hospital. Because even when they reveal, even when the, the mask comes off when he's on the slap or the slate or whatever... You, it doesn't even look like him. It looks more like Matt. It looks more that like the, ca- the head point. counselor guy. Okay, so let's and okay, and that's well, even I more confusing because yeah. you already saw him dead <laughs> earlier. So I was like, I was still confused. I was just like, what? Well, I don't understand what's going on. And you know, and I was very young. I don't think that watching a Friday the Thirteenth film. I mean, I know that the first film is based is set up, and it's it's not Jason. It's the mother. But after that, you just because he's just kind of like this this being that keeps coming back, keeps coming back. You really just don't think it's not Jason, and I mean, hmm. there really isn't any reason for you to not think it's just Jason come back again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I really wasn't thinking there was going to be a twist. I thought, if anything, I maybe had an inkling at the beginning, like, oh, maybe maybe it's this guy. But wow. How lame would that be? <laughs> so I probably just dis- I probably just dismissed it out of hand, thinking there's no way they would do that. That doesn't that's that's silly. I'm sure they're just like trying to, as they do in in some of the earlier installments, set it up where it's like we don't know who it is, but we all know it's Jason. But sometimes I first feel for some reason they always try to like make other people suspects. You know, even some of the counselors. Like they're saying that in the in the well in the first film that makes sense because you know they we don't really know it's Jason, but um, yeah I, I I I don't think I really knew it was him until they they show you the picture hmm. and blatantly explain <laughs> well it was it, it it was actually this guy and it but his uh, his son and we don't well I don't know why he didn't tell anybody about the <laughs> son like but the, that was him like, and it's so like it's like it the doesn't need to do to that a 70s either. police show yes yeah. Oh, and, then, and I have a favorite line, and oh, well, I'll get to it later, I guess. But, yeah, it's just, um, I feel like it does its job in the sense that I really did not see that coming. Hmm. But it's it's just lame. <laughs> You're just like, what? Well, like, okay, no. Mike Fenner, but you go first before I, I give you my, when I figured it out. I, I can't tell, especially watching it as an adult, I can't tell if they do the whodunit really well or if they do it just really poorly. Because there's just those <laughs> oddball moments like when uh, Sheriff Tucker, one of my favorite characters in the movie, uh, that when the two uh, greasers get killed. And oh, yeah. Roy's this is what I was talking about. He's like, oh, God, yeah. You ta- you're talking to me? No, Roy. Oh, I thought you were talking to me. And you're almost putting just this red light, like... <laughs> flashing bulb like this is the killer but 
if you're watching it for the first time, there is no reason to think that Jason Voorhees is not alive again. Because yeah, yeah, Jason Voorhees is always first see, or is always kind of shown as Jason Voorhees, in that he's indestructible. But Danny Steinman and uh, always said that they had the notion they had a notion in their head when they were writing it that he was possessed by the spirit of Jason Voorhees, which makes sense when you think about where we get with Jason Goes to Hell. Wait, so, so wait, I'm sorry, you said Steinman said that he, that his idea was that Roy was possessed? That uh, in the book Making Friday the 13th by David Grove, they talk about it quite a bit, that there is a notion at least, they never delve into it, that he is possessed by the spirit of Jason. Hmm. I'm sure, I'm sure they were like, oh, well, well, well. Yeah, it sure let, was Jason. Well, let me just uh, say that, sure. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I never got that. I just figured he lost his mind and and decided to take on the, the the visage and the guise of Jason. I never got that he was possessed. I never got any supernatural like, vibes. Once he did, like Jason, you know, his spirit came out of the dead and said, "Here, I'm going. I'm going to help you with this. I'm going to help you get Tommy Jarvis." He's like, yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure Jason's spirit said, "I'm going to go help you find a, a, a bald cap <laughs> to put on and, and makeup to make it look like you're bald." I'm sure Jason's spirit. Came up with all those ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if the Who Done It has done really well because they they throw in a lot of suspects. Because as you're yeah, watching, we'll, we'll it, def- when we it, go to the characters, we'll definitely break down. Yeah. Do we think this character was a suspect or was supposed motives, to be a yeah. suspect? Because there's definitely, like you said, a number of those. But here's my notes. Here are my notes. When I was a kid, when I when I heard that, I, see, I, I go into, I knew that Jason wasn't actually the killer going into the movie, oh, but I didn't okay. know who it was. But I didn't know who it was. I did not know it was Roy. Okay, keep that in mind. So, even as a kid, I remember there was a cut to the commercial break, and and you see Roy after he discovers his son dead, kind of like staring off into the distance, and then there's a fade to black. Like that's not foreboding, right? It's very foreboding. <laughs> right? Why would you do that? And then, like you said, the what the hell's going on here? Are you talking to me, sheriff? And then at the end of that scene, the deputy says, "Looks like we got a maniac on the loose, eh, sheriff?" And then they cut to Roy looking over at them, <laughs> and he closes the trunk, and the scene ends. Like, okay, well, this is probably the killer, I guess. This is, or this is supposed to be a red herring, but it's not right. the killer. Um, and and so, Mac, you'd mentioned it first, but when it's revealed to be him, his eyes are closed. It's raining. It's dark. He's got like the bald cap on. It doesn't even look like the actor. It looks like someone else. And all is, they had to do, the suit. It's bizarre. and all they had to, well, and all they had to do was just have his eyes open because those eyes are so piercing. You would know right away it was Roy, but like you said, it looks like it's just Matt, who we just saw <laughs> dead, <laughs> nailed up against a tree. And like, figure out the reshoot a, there. Why would you have a dead person with their eyes closed, especially a dead person whose character, like the, like you said, the eyes are so piercing. Most people, when they die, particularly in the kind of movies we're watching here. Have their eyes open. Yeah, and I also the impact feel, of that death would also probably oh open yeah. Your eyes. It's like he's like falling if, asleep. if you he get stabbed like that, your eyes are open. <laughs> I would, I've got to <laughs> think, right? You're like, oh, <laughs> there's no way. You're like, or even even after the fact, like I, I just I feel like, uh, I don't know. That it's, is a dumb it, decision. I never thought about that. That I, is I a dumb I, dumb I, decision. Like I said, so oh, it's very and there's some other things too. It. Yeah. Well, I, I'll I'll save it for when we get to talking about Jason. But um, yeah, it's yeah that the reveal again 
watching it like you like you guys were saying if you if you are watching this movie for the first time and you have no reason to believe that Jason's not going to come back from the dead again you're definitely not looking for anyone else so honestly those things that seem really obvious those cuts and those fade outs and things i i just chalk that up to like the 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 filmmaking of a Jason film you know what i mean they're not always like the greatest transitions they're not always the greatest you know what i mean i just i just thought it was sloppy i didn't think they're trying to point at, oh, this is the killer, because why would they ever do that? You always, it's it's Jason. Like well, something no, else we did talk about was that there were a lot of drugs going around on the set. So <laughs> that could have figured into some decision-making as well. We have to keep that in mind. Um, well, one more note I have. The, yeah, yeah. Is um, as a director, at the very end of the movie, why would you show what Tommy sees in the drawer when he sees the Jason mask and takes it out and looks at it, why wouldn't you just have him either have her come in and see the window broken and then see him with the mask on and the knife? Or at the at worst, you see him open up the drawer where we don't see what he's looking at. Like, that's a really weird decision to have him, like, take up, look at the mask, hear her coming in. You've already ruined the scare in a way. Like, uh, anyway, that's it just me. Like with my, you, 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 my you, you, that's my film analysis nightmare version of myself that I'm I'm definitely overthinking a little bit but I, I just think they that wanted to show him literally taking up the mantle Ugh, I suppose I don't know Ugh, it's just it's, <laughs> it's just a sloppy movie and honestly you could argue that of all the movies this is probably this is not the worst by any means by any means this, this is probably this is probably the worst directed right which I think is I, I it is one of the worst directed and having Dove into Danny Steinman's career, I'm fascinated because I think Savage Streets and The Unseen and High Rise show that he kind of has an auteurist vision. And I think a little bit that is seen in Friday the 13th, Part 5, but it also looks so cheap. It looks like it came out before the final chapter. See, I disagree in the sense that it looks like late late 80s, early 90s direct-to-video slop. I see what you're saying. I'm saying in terms of the the way it's... It's like the cinematography, Over, but it's like overly lit. Yeah, and yeah. there's no there's no there's no thought to it. To so the way any of the shots are set up or the way the shots are lit. Look, it's a brutal it's a it's a brutal movie in terms of its um, the deaths, and in terms of its execution. <laughs> uh, pun intended. Let's go with the puns again. Why not? Well, we spent a lot of time on on the history of this movie, but we we've got to get into the actual movie itself. So. Let's move on to another headache-inducing section that we call, get ready folks, time and place. What the hell is that? Humanoid. Organic composition is unclear. Can someone tell me what's on his face? Uh, some kind of 20th century carbon filtration unit? It's a hockey mask. Okay, so for this, this, yeah, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I was not able to find anything in this film that was a date or... I was even looking at maybe things that people had hanging up in their rooms. Like, yeah. okay, well, there's like a Madonna picture. Like, like were, what albums were coming out? Like, when uh, were you able to find anything that signified like the date? No, because I mean, obviously, all the posters are early '80s stuff. But that could just be somebody who likes good music, especially right. in in, in um, with Violet's room. I guess it would be. But yeah, I had the subtitles on, and I was looking at dates, like you said, throughout the movie calendars. And I didn't see anything that specified what year it was even. But we, we, we do know a couple... Let's get a couple facts straight. So we know 
that this movie takes place at the Unger Institute of Mental Health. Whoops, looks like someone's had too much chocolate. He means the Pinehurst Youth Development Center. Which we can uh, presume is in the same location, um, if not on Crystal Lake, very close by, since the sheriff seems extremely confident that the killer is the is the long dead Jason Voorhees. I don't think if this movie he don't, he don't give a fuck. No, if, if this movie took place in Florida, I don't think he'd be saying ah, probably Jason Voorhees, right? So I'm assuming it takes place. We can all assume that, right? It's, it's Crystal Lake adjacent or something, right? Okay, so let me propose this to the two of you. Wikipedia says it's been five years, but I, I, does it say that in the movie? No, right? It doesn't say that in the movie. So how are we supposed to know it's five no years? Way. Okay. So if we do take that as fact, and we know that the final chapter officially takes place in 1984, and this movie would take place in 1989. However, the actor John Shepard, who takes over as Tommy Jarvis, is 11 years older than Corey Feldman, who plays Tommy in the final chapter. So it's also possible that this takes place in 1995. So this is the first movie where we really have to figure out going forward where this, where, I'm sorry, when this takes place. So, uh, Mac, what do you think? Do you have another option here? Or is it, is 89 or 95? No, I was, I was just about to say, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, to back up Vanderbilt's assumption that this movie looks like it was made in the late 80s, early 90s, I'm going to say 89. <laughs> because, uh, you know, back then they had a, a bad habit of casting actors that were much older than the, the character they're supposed to be playing. So I buy that it's supposed to be five years later and this is supposed to be <laughs> Corey Feldman five years later only. This guy is like so much older than that. I know. But they, do, um, they do refer to him as a it's kid crazy, a lot, but so it's also possible. You know? I know, they do. And it's like, well, I don't know. But even now I still see this guy as like older than me, which is insane. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I, I'm going to say that it's 89 because it just it makes more sense in terms of <laughs> the timeline. But uh, yeah, that's my, my take on it. Mike Vanderbilt. I've always read that. Oh, I can't take that back. I've read two different theories that Tommy is either 15 in this film. Oh, my God. Or 20. Oh, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> look, look, man. Look, let me tell you. If anything can age you, it is killing a mass murderer in your home and being shuffled around from several mental hospitals. Yeah, but he's like, I've ripped. never been, yeah, he's like in good, I, he's in good, he's in good, he's in good yeah, health at least. He's like, you know? what would, what would you do, man? Like you, if you thought this guy was coming back for you. Well, I would probably kill myself. <laughs> there's no way, there's no way, listen, this guy is still making latex masks in that detail. There's no way he's got that much time to work out. I don't think he's still making no, masks. No, I think those masks are those from masks, the, yeah. Those masks are all the, that, the same ones that he had in four. Mm-hmm. Are they really? Pretty sure. Pretty sure. I feel like those. some of those look like they were new. Well, that's because it's no, only I, been and, a year and since once the last again, one. Let me, and let me, let, me just, let me just get back on this train. Once again, <laughs> they totally just brush over the fact that he makes these masks and they don't use them in any constructive, cool way later on in the film at all or anything. Because wouldn't it have been great if like he like put on one of those masks and scared the hell out of Jason because it ain't Jason, it's this fucking ambulance driver, Roy. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. There are a lot of missed opportunities in this movie too, which we can get uh, to later yeah. with some of the character stuff. I think. But I would be willing to go with, it's five years after the final chapter, making this 1989 and making uh, Tommy 
what, 17? Yes. Because he was, yeah, yeah, that's right. He could be 17. He could be an aged 17. And, and of course, it's Hollywood, so we we usually have people in their mid twenties playing teenagers, especially during this era. Well, I I think there might be some. We we could say maybe uh, that poison that. Listen to me. Hear me out here. The poison that Mrs. Voorhees put into the water in Crystal Lake Mm. in the sixties made all the teenagers (laughs) age just a little bit, which is why in all the Friday the Thirteenth films, the teenagers look a little bit older than they actually are. This is a take. That is deep. I like this. Can we, can, we, that is, can, that is can we throw that in there? Can, can we, we get, put that in there? Yeah, we, I love can it. Can we edit the Friday 13th <laughs> lore entry on Wikipedia as soon as possible? We, we need to add, add this in there. It would be really <laughs> funny if Danny Steinman was so um, ahead of his time and, and really wanted to cement when this took place. And in Violet's room, instead of posters of, you know, like the Eurythmics and Madonna, she had posters of, like, the Pixies Doolittle album. <laughs> Like, or um, I was gonna say Annie Lennox is all over that. No, like Violet had like sub pop posters on her wall. Like, but I, I I, I do think that to Max' point, like we were talking about, like I think uh, because after nineteen, like the the eighties of nineteen eighty till nineteen eighty four looked different than the eighties of nineteen eighty five to nineteen eighty nine, and I think even if this wasn't obviously this was not Danny Steinman's intent. Every character in there looks like they could. They might have been dressing the same way in 1989, except for maybe Demon. Yeah, Demon's. Yeah, Demon's very mid 80s. Very yeah. 1985. Um, well, Demon looks like somebody from a 19, another 1985 movie that we'll be talking about later on as well. Okay, so I, I would agree with the two of you. I think logistically speaking, let's. Okay, so from from going forward, this movie takes place in 1989 I'm, I'm fine with it i'm at peace okay he's he's a he's a which is it's funny because it'll still make tommy like 17 in this <laughs> he looks like he's 25 he looks his age because <laughs> yeah, he, yeah he was 25 when they made this movie but okay i'll go with it i'm gonna go with it 89 okay my god was there well, a full moon on this date well I, I gotta go check my notes everybody pause while i find that information all right well let's move on to our next section which is, well, hell, it's appropriate for this episode. It's called, Ooh, baby, ooh, baby, baby, ooh, baby, baby, hey, baby, hey, baby, ooh, baby, ooh, baby, ooh, baby, ooh, baby. Well, good news for all of you Harry heads out there. Harry Manfredini returns yet again to do the score. And I don't know if the two of you noticed this, but having, especially after diving into those first four movies as much as we have, I think this is a hundred percent new material. Am I wrong? It sounds like that is one hundred. That is one hundred percent correct. Uh, yeah. It was the first film, I believe, since the first one that he got to create one hundred percent new material for. That's interesting. That is fact. Did you hear the Kiki Ki Mama Ma at the very end briefly, but none none of the cues from the earlier entries are in there. They really were trying to make it a new beginning. I guess. Mac, did you notice I, this this go around? You know. I noticed that I really enjoyed the music in this one, mm. and I feel like, you know, he's been on he's been on all of them so far, right? Yeah, yeah. And I felt like even though the final chapter is supposed to be like the end, I feel like this score is more memorable than the last uh, the last film, and I feel like that's because I I do feel like there's a little bit of new life breathed into this. 
There's some effects that are used that I think are really interesting and creepy. Uh, I like whenever uh, Tommy has a dream sequence. It's like that. It's like, it, you know what it reminds me of is, uh, is Kill Bill. Mm. When, uh, when whenever Uma sees <laughs> one of the, the killers or whatever, it's like that. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's the, the same right? like yeah. kind of kind of like uh, uh, sting or whatever. But uh, no, I actually really enjoyed the 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 music in this film. I think that it's like a solid uh, uh, score. Justin, do you have this score? It's on iTunes, so I've been listening to it. Especially doing the but research I thought, for this. But I thought some. I thought Mike. Oh got wait, no, you're the, right. I do have the beginning. vinyl. You you don't have the vinyl, right? I do you should bust that out and take a look at it. Definitely, yeah. It's, um, it's a it's a great looking vinyl too. It's just this extreme close up of the mask and then the the hedge clippers. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll put up on um. I'll, I'll break it open and put it up on Instagram for sure. Uh, Vanderbilt, what do you think about the score of this movie? Uh, two notes on the score. I think what you mentioned about how you really don't hear the kick 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 ma ma ma. I think the astute viewer would be able to tell that it wasn't Jason Voorhees throughout the film because much like in Jaws. Where you, if it's really the shark, you hear the dun dun. But when it's not, like when the kids have the fin, you don't hear the music. Yeah, yeah. Ah, that's a very good point. And of course, to see this movie it doesn't it doesn't hurt to see this movie eighty five times. Like we have so <laughs> it also helps. <laughs> First, it's like I've been watching this movie, you know, on and off for like the last twenty five, thirty years, if even that. And it's I find it took me like viewing number. 20 to be like oh this is new music <laughs> completely <laughs> and i really like the cue that when dudley from different strokes is on the 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 constructed kind i don't know yes. the uh, yeah, the bulldozer yeah. there's like this kind of cool action movie cue and then it shifts right into friday the 13th sh- shrieking violins when he hits um it. i, I you, you could argue that the best part about this movie is Probably the score because I agree. I think the score is a lot is pretty memorable. It's got a good punch to it. There's a lot of energy to it, and I think Manfredini yeah. was probably just excited to have the reins to, to again create something totally new and not depend on old cues like he had in the for the last three movies essentially. Um, it's like Tommy uh, Tommy driven, you know, and I and I like that. Yeah. I like that it's kind of more a score for him rather than Jason. Uh, yeah, it's it's a weird singular score, but I I think it it really works uh, in favor of the film. Well, I've got a quote here from Anfredini. He says, uh, "Part five was a real challenge, and that I knew as I was scoring that the killer was not Jason, and so I had to work even harder on the tension, fights, and kills to keep the audience unaware that Jason was not in the film." So, hmm. I imagine it was a challenge too, because you know it's like ninety minutes of new music. Oh, something we need to point out. That I was excited to see, and I'd forgotten. Was it the old logo from the first two movies? Returns yes. for the opening credits. I like that a lot. The old fat Friday the Thirteenth logo is back, and then of course the yeah. exploding hockey mask arrives. Oh. And, but then it's <laughs> unannounced. And then it's immediately undercut by the cheapest title <laughs> card that looks like an old Film Ventures International uh, VHS release. It's so cheap, so superimposed that. Oh. Ugh. You know yeah. exactly what you're getting yourself into, I guess, at yeah, that you, point. You know what you're into at this point. Well, this is officially and sadly the last time we do see that old logo. As it's far also as I the. Can recall. Yes, yeah, that's correct. This is the last uh, time Georgetown Productions is involved as well. Because I, I think Frank Mancuso mm. Jr. had already left the project. He did not produce this one either. We should have mentioned that. No, I thought he was involved in this one. 
maybe, but did he retire after, or did he stop? No, after because this one? he he comes back for six because when he hires Tommy McLaughlin, which we'll get into on the next episode. That's right. That's what it is. he okay. says. I don't care what the fuck you do, just bring back Jason. This was the last one for uh, Scuderi and the other guy from Georgetown. Let me, let me consult my notes here for a moment. I do have that written yeah. down because I thought that was an interesting touch because Georgetown Productions also produced a film called Eyes of a Stranger, the 1981 slasher movie with Jennifer Jason Lee and Lauren Twos of The Love Boat, speaking of fine television. But this was the <laughs> 80s last... 80s TV, this episode's all about. <laughs> uh, and it featured uh, special effects by Tom Savini. So this was the last oh. one from Georgetown Productions, which was... Skidari uh, and the other guy, and I cannot remember his fucking name right now. It's like Placido Domingo. Timothy <laughs> Silver? Tim Silver? Well, listen, folks, listening, you're not going to get this information from any other podcast. I defy you to find any <laughs> other podcast that's going to look into <laughs> the, when, who, who left the franchise from Georgetown, the, the studio Georgetown <laughs> production company, after. A new beginning. Well, but Vanderbilt, why are you looking entry. for that? Did you find it? If you, if you no, I'm going to say this, this was their last entry uh, under the, last George, entry. the Georgetown banner. Well, a couple other entries. You know, I was, I was trying to find the song that Billy's listening to in his car when he's, when he's waiting for Lana. It's this really generic music, and I, and I couldn't find it anywhere. But guess what? One of the bonus tracks on the soundtrack for New Beginning is Heavy Metal by Harry Manfredini. So there it is. It's, it's incidental music created solely for that scene by Mr. Manfredini. It's heavy metal by way of additional keyboards. So it kind of is, it's kind of, it's true to late 80s actually. It's almost like a, like a poison track in a way. And they were not around, I don't believe, in 85. Please, if you know whether or not Poison the Band was around in 85, and I'm wrong, do not contact me on social media. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure you're wrong. Is it? I thought like they were like 86, 87 when they yeah, appeared but, on mean, the scene. They were around. I don't think. Man, okay, I'll be I don't think Manfredini. I don't think Billy was listening to Poison on this radio in eighty five. So <laughs> he was in eighty nine. He was in. It is L A. It is. Well, this movie was up. Yeah, that's uh. a whole other story. My God. <laughs> um, one other thing about the main theme: Did the two of you were, were you the two of you confused? Okay. When Pam, Poison was uh, initially named Paris and formed in 1983 in oh Pennsylvania. What was their first album? What year? Uh, first album. I'm guessing you're right, though, on that. Uh, 19, yeah, Rise to Fame was 1986 on. Okay. Uh, I can sleep tonight. I can sleep tonight. <laughs> um, so, listen, I have a question for you guys. All right. There's one jarring piece of music in this movie, though. And it's the scene when Pam, Tommy, and Reggie are going to visit Demon, all right? So they're taking the trip out there, and they've got, like, the main score pumping for some reason. Did you notice that? As though they ran no. out of music, so they've got this terrifying music playing while they're just taking a casual trip out to go well, visit Demon as we, at the trailer As we park. know in the Friday the 13th universe, the FCU, I suppose, uh, the Friday the 13th music is diegetic, as we know, because the disco theme played in the convenience store in Part 3. Oh, I mean, if it was play- if they were actually listening to it on the radio, playing? first of all, yeah, that would be hilarious. Be oh, it's not. But it, it's, it's, it's not played. No, it's, it's just, just played over it. Score. <laughs> I did not even realize that. That'd be great. Pam's like, I've got this wonderful new piece from Harry Manfredini. <laughs> I want to play for the, th- the two of you. <laughs> you mentioned people who'd be less interested in listening to Harry Manfredini music than Reggie the Reckless and and Tommy in this movie. <laughs> like, 
Um, anyway, very weird scene. Check that scene out again if you if uh, if if you need to revisit this movie immediately after listening to this episode. I've got some more information about we gotta talk about Ubu Baby. Are we ready? I've been waiting five oh, months yeah. to talk about this. Now, is this an actual song, Mac? That's a great question. I've got the answer for you. Hmm. Miguel Nunez, who plays Demon, in an interview with fourteen twenty eight Elm Street, the website a couple years ago, revealed the following. Are the two of you ready for this? This is a a direct quote. Whoa. Okay. Miguel Nunez said, it was ad-libbed. Oh, wow. (laughs) I can't believe it. So, yeah, uh, he came up with with it on set (laughs) along with the the actor. So it's it's an unofficial co-writing credit, obviously, with the, the actor who played Anita, Jerry Fields. So... It's a Nunez Fields song, Ooh Baby. It's improvised. Uh, to bring that? it back to bring it back around to Halloween, I wanted to ask you guys, what do you think is the better made up song? Oh, this is a good question. Oh, Ooh, ooh Baby or I wish I had you all alone. Oh man, that is such a good question. I'll be I'll, I'll be honest oh, with I... you. I'll be honest <laughs> with you. Over the years, I've probably joked saying Ooh Baby more than the quote the the the, the I wish I had you all alone, just the two of us song that Lori but I But I don't think of, when I think of improvised songs from Halloween, I think of uh, No Keys. Ooh. <laughs> that, that Annie sings. The Annie song. No I I, Keys, yeah. but please, Paul. Wow, that's... I think that, that that's more memorable to me. But I do love Ooh Baby. I mean, I, I, anytime you, you do that, over the last 20 years, Justin, I know exactly <laughs> what it is. It takes me right back, and I have to think about this film. <laughs> and the, the harmonies kick in right away. You know? I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Ooh Baby, just because I, having watched this movie countless times and being a uh, a big Prince fan, I always pictured. I, I came up with this elaborate backstory because, as you can see, if you look, I don't know if we want to get into this here, but Demon's character is a musician. Not only does he dress like a musician, but there's a bass in the car and or in the van, which he's probably, I'm assuming, on tour or playing around. And I always pictured him to be in a band like. Uh, inspired by or part of the Minneapolis sound that was coming out of Minneapolis at the time, or mm-hmm. something like Cameo, the you know these these black rock bands that had yeah. a lot of funk to them. And I always I always pictured that Demon was in a band like that. Well, we got we we got to dive into that later on, but I will say I I did get major uh, Kiss vibes, not the band, but the Prince song Kiss. And of course, that song didn't come out till 1986. So once again. That would make sense if this movie takes place yeah. in 1989, yeah. that he would allude to 1986's <laughs> Kiss. He would Prince be inspired by 1986 sprints. Exactly. So let's we'll talk. We'll de- we definitely talk about the character of Demon and uh, Miguel Nunez's his, his career later on in the episode. Um, but the, the the next song we got to talk about is another classic dance scene from a Friday Thirteenth film, and it's Violet's dance to Pseudo Echoes yeah. His Eyes. Um, great avant-garde dancing, I would say, by by Violet in the scene. Pseudo Echo also did a, a semi-popular remake of the song Funky Town in the 80s, which was actually my first exposure to that song. I did not realize it was a remake. I remember watching that video on MTV as a youth. Um, Mike Vanderbilt, your take on this song and its placement in the Friday the 13th lore. I dig it, and uh, you know, not to bury the lead or anything, but that is what makes Violet's death possibly my favorite one of the film. Because mm. it's so 
you got the music playing in the background, drowning out any sound that would be coming from the room. I, I, I think in, uh, in a film filled with kind of just dullness, I, I, I think that the film really uh, is exciting at that point. Yeah, Matt, what do you sequence. think about the song and the, and the scene that the song appears in? Um, the song's okay. I think that they spend a lot of time focusing on her dance, and there's a point. <laughs> there was a point at which I thought that is a really like like bizarre, subtle robot thing she's doing. It's like not all. Yeah. It's not all out. It's just like it's like barely there, but it is there. I was like, are you? You're either really talented at guising that or just really failing. Um, but I do think that that is a good death scene because uh, I do like I do like when uh, I like that uh, Roy <laughs> takes his time because he's probably listening to the music. He's like, oh, this is pretty good. And so he decides that he's going to stand behind that one wall so that she can't see him. So she, he can hear a little bit more of the song and a little bit more of the dance. <laughs> He's tapping his toes to it, <laughs> yeah. pulling that huge machete or knife in the in his right hand. And they said, Steinman, uh, I don't think we can focus on his feet when uh, uh, tapping his feet to the song. <laughs> and cut. <laughs> because Dang I Steinman think the said. people are going to know it's not Jason. Um, yeah, it, it's a good song. I, obviously, it's, I, I think we put up a joke. I mean, I know we put up a joke Instagram post about, you know, what's the better dance or what's the better moment, Violet or Jimbo from Final Chapter, but... Look, I was going to say, I'm surprised we didn't no, do our no, own videos of it, Justin. Uh, it's not iconic enough. <laughs> it's, it's well, we, we can make it. We can make it. Goofing around. <laughs> um, but I, I, think, think, the, I think the Violet Dance is somewhat iconic, but it's just uh, because part five is not as well regarded as the final chapter. I, I think, think you might be right there. I think and this because is it's the bastard Crispin dance Glover. of the franchise. It's not Crispin Glover. Let's face it's not. That. You know what? That's, that's, that's very fair. It's, that's it's hard to top whatever Crispin Glover does in movies, to be honest with you. All right, well, Mac, you mentioned them. You teased them. We've got to move on to our next section, um, which we're going to cover not one, not two, but three people who played quote-unquote Jason in this movie in a section we call His Name Was Jason. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. All right, well, let's kick it off with the man of the hour. Um, Dick Weand plays Roy Burns, who we discover really when the, when the picture in the wallet is revealed <laughs> that, he is, uh, <laughs> that he, in fact, The was picture the of the son that he hadn't seen since the day he was born. Wearing just the white shirt he was wearing that day, probably, uh, underneath oh, his Oh, and, his and the best, that's, that's the best part about that reveal is, is it's a picture of Joey, like, Yesterday, <laughs> not of like him as a, like a little boy. Yeah, you know, it's like the the most unflattering photo of this kid. Like, like, how did you even have this photo if you've not? It's so bizarre that he would even have that photo in his wallet. Well, another thing about that, it's actually a good resemblance because he does he does have the same eyes that uh, yeah. that Joey has. You know, they've got the same blue eyes. So I thought that was actually pretty good from the casting department. Uh, Dick Wean, not a huge career after this, by the way. Not didn't appear in a lot of things. I'm not sure if the two of you have notes on that, but I didn't really find anything of major note to, to, to discuss too much. But this is obviously a huge character when it comes to the franchise. I mean, first of all, he's got the mask, but it's got two blue marks 
instead of red. That's definitely something to note. Yeah, so I wanted to, to bring up something there yeah. I thought was really interesting is the opening credits when the Friday the 13th logo is destroyed, it's by the mask and it's the mask with the two the two dashes on it. Mm-hmm. Um which the which which is obviously Roy's mask. Whenever Tommy has a flashback or a vision of Jason, it's a mask with a red check mark in the middle. It's and, not and the two dashes, and I I, no, I really li- I like that distinction. That is um, a great touch that I didn't notice till probably about four or five years ago watching this because not just the mask, but it's a completely different. It's the uh, official Jason costume of Part Four that he picked up in Three. Whenever it's Tommy's vision. But whenever Roy is there, it's a blue boiler suit. And it would have been really easy to just make that, honestly, the way a lot of this movie went. I, would, I wouldn't have been surprised if they just went with the blue checkmark Max mask on honest to God, during the visions, that, right? Why It, it fascinates me yeah. that they went to lengths to get that detail down. I think. And then also, if you look at the poster, it's just a blank mask. Okay, let There's me, no check marks should, on it. We should talk about that now. What what an awful poster, the, for the main poster, which is just now the main posters. Yeah, yeah. The one that the one that's most famous for it's the VHS box, I guess we should say, which is this mm-hmm. really nondescript generic hockey mask with no marks on it, and just red light coming through. I mean, we couldn't have come up with anything better than that. At least the main poster well, has did. like the, the silhouette of of Tommy with the machete. It's kind of misleading. And even the teaser poster of but, If Jason Still Haunts Your Dreams, that's a great teaser poster, you know? Yeah, I like that. If Jason Still Haunts You, You're Not Alone. I like that tagline. Mm-hmm. And I do like, there's one There's one where it's like the mask in the background, the middle has the tagline, and then you have Tommy with the machete. And if, yeah. for any, if anybody's looking at this, you would just think, okay, well, Tommy's like out for revenge. He's going after Jason or whatever again, you know? Um, yeah. And, then, and you would never think, oh, well, this is the end of the movie <laughs> or something like that, you know. Uh, but, yeah, it's a lot of interesting choices being made. Uh, yeah, that, that that main poster, though, is just it's so weird. You know why it's also weird is that the mask has always been, you know, the 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 holes in the mask have always been circular. And the mask for the main <laughs> poster, for some reason, are like squared. It's so it's just, bizarre. Ugh, so the and nose it doesn't even is a, not really there. It doesn't yeah. even appear in the movie either. If it appeared in the movie, that would make complete sense to me. That sure, this is sure. new Jason. He has a new mask. I mean, this is one of two posters that does that features a mask that is not featured in the film. Ugh, just, ugh, just so annoying. But uh, something else. We, my God, we didn't, we didn't resolve earlier. Now that I'm thinking about the the, the poster, what is this movie called? Mac, <laughs> what do you call this movie? Um, I mean, I don't know. Well, I, I just have always called it Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning. Now, I, I don't know if that's real because what, what, what happens with the, the opening credits is it's just A New Beginning. There's no Part 5? That's correct. <clears throat> yeah, this, I don't know. This is the Halloween 5 issue all over again, but there's no Revenge <laughs> of Michael Myers in the movie. It just says Halloween 5. I think that the ch- I think they chose again because if they were thinking that this was going to be a new series with a new Jason, you know, like if they this is the introduction, like I think what they I think the original idea, to be honest with you, I think is that they wanted there to be another mislead 
where instead of Jason, it's it's the mother, whereas instead of Jason, it's Roy. And then Tommy is going to be Jason going forward in this mm-hmm. new version. And that's why they left off the five in the theatrical cut because they wanted it to kind of be its own like extension of the series. Like, but yeah. this was going to technically be part one of that new series. Well, I've got some notes, some things I've read, but there's nothing really definite about this. Mike Vanderbilt, do you have any information about what they were planning to do? And of course, what is this movie called? I just, I think most people just refer to it as part five and they know exactly what you're talking (laughs) about. But I personally like ditching the part five. I like when sequels ditch the numeral and, and just go for something that it's a sequel, but it's sort of standalone. Yeah. I, I, because I've heard that this is this is supposed to kick off a trilogy of movies with different killers. I heard, like you said, Mac, that Tommy was going to be the killer going forward. I mean, this wasn't planned out like they were planning out, you know, three seasons of Netflix's Dark. Like they were like they weren't playing this out back in 1980, saying, okay, well, listen, 85, we're going to have it take place in 89, and there's going to be character. You know, they, they weren't planning out that far ahead. No, so who were, knows were, what the hell was going kind on? Of- they were kind of planning it like the Disney Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> yeah, really. Like, well, we'll write, we'll write and direct this major saga, and then we'll hand it off to somebody else to do it, and then we'll worry about how we're going to close. Like, yeah, I agree. It's just a, it's a real mess. It's a real disastrous sloppy. community effort. Sloppy. Yeah, it's sloppy. Um, but I mean, now the here's the thing the about Dick Whelan, though. Is oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Oh no, I was just going to say the Friday the Thirteenth movies. You could say they never were concerned with continuity, but one, two, three, and four oddly enough, are, more so than they probably needed to be. Well, I would argue even the fifth one is, when you think about it. I mean, you're, you're, you're including yeah. Corey Feldman still. You're, you're showing those masks from the fourth movie, you know? Your sound bites from the fourth movie. Yeah. So I, I would honestly really, I don't know. I mean, even the first eight movies, there's connective tissue between all those movies. But we'll get, well, listen, we, man, we're, we're digressing <laughs> now. We got. Yeah, we still have two Jasons to get to. But my other thing about Dick Wean is that, for the most part, it was actually stuntman Tom Morga who played Jason. You see him most of the time. He's a stunt double for Dick Wean. Um, he's also Jason, in Tommy's visions of Jason. By the way, Tom see, Morga. I was going to ask if yeah. Wean was was like if he goes to like the cons and stuff like that, as technically no, one of the Jasons. He does. He does because he does? He, okay. he does still appear as as Roy as Jason uh, throughout the movie, but most of the stunt work and a lot of the action scenes is actually Tom Morga. So they it's it's gotcha. not like a Warrington Gillette situation where he's in like you know two shots essentially. Um, something very notable about Tom Morga though is that he originally was hired to do Michael Myers in Halloween Four, and he's in the movie as Michael Myers. In the abandoned gas station scene that Loomis stumbles upon, that's Tom Morga. That's, that's the only oh, sequence really? he does, right? Yeah, and then he was for performance issues. He was he was let go. I would love to know how you get let go, and we'll talk about that next month for a Friday Thirteenth movie. How do you blow playing one of these people, one of these killers? Like, how, what's the? <laughs> did you not walk fast enough? Did you not walk? It, well, it doesn't go, make sense because in that in in Halloween Four, he's just wearing a bandaged head, and you see him at the end of a hallway, and that's about yeah, the but only I guess sequence just some you of the see him in. That. Some of the movement didn't work out very well. But something else oh, is boy. that he also, um, I think he he's Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two uh, during the bridge 
uh, chainsaw fight. I believe that's him as because I know he stunt doubles in that movie. So a real trifecta for Tom Morgan in terms of playing these legendary horror yeah. villains, right? I mean, I gotta give it that's up. That's pretty to him. cool, actually. Yeah. What do we think about the the, the Jason quote unquote of this movie though? Is, do you feel like he's very menacing? And when he appears, when he appears, when he kicks through that door and 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 makes you know uh, Pam and oh, Reggie scream, man. is that the moment where you look at him movie. and say, "Oh, this isn't Jason"? No, that's the that's the only part where I'm like, "Oh, this is Jason." How would Roy have the strength and ability <laughs> to break through this door like a like a monster? It just it doesn't make sense. Hey, unless you appreciate, if you understand that he is possessed by the oh, spirit God. of Jason. Oh, it's just a retcon. There's no way that was the original <laughs> idea. No well, way that was the original idea. Because his, his head was crystal clean. Like, there was no cut marks and there was no... Anything. Oh, that was another thing, too, is that the mask in the dream sequences has the mark from the machete yeah, cut. Exactly. That's why I was thinking, yeah. well, you can get a new mask, but you still have that huge chop in your head. And so that's when I really realized, oh, maybe this is Roy. Maybe Well, we'll get into that later on. So, um, yeah. In terms of a menacing character, not nearly as menacing as the Jasons from the previous three entries, in my opinion, in terms of, the, in terms of a villain, right? This is... The worst of the five so far. Would you Would you agree, well, Mike Vanderbilt? I would agree with that. Did, are, are we going to talk about the other guy that played Jason? Uh, we will. Did we already. We will. I've got some notes on this person, Mac. Did you know that there was a third person that plays Jason in this movie? Well, I did not. No. Tom Morgan wasn't available for the dream sequence, so the graveyard Jason is not Dick Weand. It's not Tom Morgan. It's John Hawk. And I think he also appears, he's the one that falls from the barn at the very end. I think that's also hmm. John Hawk doing that. Well, that would make sense because he doesn't look anything like Roy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, like it's actually his face, this, they show. <laughs> but, but here's something I'm sure Mike Vanderbilt knows that I'm about to bring up here. Maybe I'm surprising everybody here. But he, John Hawk, stuntman in countless films over the last you know, 30, 40 years. Most notably... He was a stuntman, and Weekend at Bernie's 2, <laughs> which makes it, I think, this is at least the third consecutive episode where we have brought up Weekend at Bernie's for some reason. It's got to be. So, anyway, yeah. and of course, Weekend at Bernie's 2 uh, stars Friday the 13th, Part 7's uh, Terry Kaiser as the titular Bernie. So, if you're, if you're scoring at home, check it off. It's a uh, weekend at Bernie's time here on Halloweenies. Oh, and by the way, I always called it Friday the 13th Part 5. <laughs> we finally resolved that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Can you imagine yeah. people with, like, who, have, who have, you know, conditions that need questions answered immediately and have had to wait 90 minutes to get the final answer? <laughs> uh, my condolences, but you know what? We'll know if you were listening if you don't complain online. So we'll know you listened to this entire episode. Okay. I, I I wanted to add one more thing to the Jason thing, just yeah. because I think it's interesting. I'm not sure we're gonna where we fit it in later, but do we all know who is a stunt coordinator on Friday the Thirteenth: A New Beginning? No, I don't have that. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Richard Warlock, who you may know as oh, Dick. Oh, you know, that makes sense because there is a photo. Yes. Of him. 
He probably brought the mask to set, I guess, of him wearing the mask yeah. with Dick Weand. Um, probably shot at the very end of the movie because it's it, he's got the makeup surrounding his face. So Dick Warwick, yeah, Dick Warwick played the shape in Halloween too. Wow, Richard Warlock, nice little career there he made it up for himself, huh? I, I, I always call him Dick Warlock. Uh, you know, I, that's that's where I come oh, from yeah. with that. By the yeah, way. no, he's he's Dick Warlock to me. Absolutely. Before we move on from the Jasons, uh, there is a moment where Reggie finds three bodies in uh, Tommy's room. Yes. Why did they not play up more on the on the idea of of Roy framing Tommy as this new Jason? Oh, like the frame up job. It feels like they're trying to do that, but they just don't know how. Or why would Roy it's even care poorly, about Tommy? Yeah. Yeah. What they really a better script would have really ramped up the Agatha Christie mystery of it all. Going it back really to the original film, could have been like, yeah. I mean, obviously, called Friday Thirteenth, so you want it to kind of take place in the same day, but you could have really kind of spread it out and said, well, maybe this is the killer, you're the killer, this is the killer. I mean, there just wasn't any of that distinctly. And, yeah, and like was done was they could have, they could have started off the film by really. Just, I mean, like, like Jason is dead. So then yeah. you are like, when they start introducing all these suspects, you are really like, okay, who's the new Jason? But they don't ever really frame it like that. So you I just know. think, especially with the dream sequences, makes it really muddy. And you just think that Jason is in fact back, and no one believes Tommy. But that he, not that Tommy tries to convince anybody because he's like a mutant in this movie. But like, I feel like. That's just the way it ends up going. I think it's just it's just sloppy filmmaking. One more note about uh, Jason Voorhees. In the opening sequence, if this movie is shot in 85 and it's set in 89, why are there two grizzled 18, uh, 1800s prospectors digging up Jason Voorhees? That's also a good question about, like, <laughs> why are there 1956 greasers in this movie? Why are there... I mean, we'll get into that in our next section, definitely. That's a great question. Like, yeah. who are these people in this world that we're living in? It's like they stumbled upon... Uh, Springfield and Freddy's Dead or something like that. Um, All right, so you guys know that I've been trying to lose weight lately. You know, I've been yeah. kind of uh, on the bigger side for most of my life, but I've, I've been able to drop a lot of weight because I've been trying to eat healthier. You look good. Th- thank you. you the problem good. is is I Wonderful. can't cook at all. Like, I'm basically going to just make I've like... I've tasted your food. I don't know if you guys ever heard of factor meals before. Yeah. No. Okay, so factor meals, it's like these easy, ready-to-eat meals that they'll send to your house. I'm oh, sure you've nice. heard of services that do this yes, type yes, of yes, thing. Yes, 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 yes. Where sure. they send food, and it's this... What I actually really liked about factor is it's like, it has to be kind of idiot proof for me because i can't cook or do anything but it's like ready in two minutes it literally comes everything together you don't have to like make anything wrap? it's it's all put together in its own thing two minutes it's not frozen which actually makes it awesome oh nice you know the frozen food yeah. it comes like in a box it's like chilled like yeah with chill the cooling stuff but uh you got all kinds so i did the keto one but they also have like calorie smart protein plus they've even got like so my wife ended up really liking these these like energy shots okay that they put they put in the box that we ordered where she it's literally like just a little shot of different kinds of energy shots that were awesome that sounds amazing was, i always was like i'd see these commercials or i'd hear commercials for stuff but i thought factor meal seemed like something that was really threading that needle and would have been really really perfect for me but dude they had like 
pancakes, smoothies. Who doesn't love pancakes? Dinners and stuff like that. Yeah. So they have breakfast. They got like midday snacks. And I, so I thought it was like perfect. Get it in, get it done, yeah. boom. If you're just looking for yeah. like fast premium options and you don't have to really cook or be able to do anything. Sure. Factor is awesome for that kind of stuff. And I thought the, and the quality of the meals, restaurant quality meals that I just could like heat and eat, dude. So it's not like you're, you know, your frozen stuff you get at the grocery store. So if you guys want to try factor meals, I'd say go for it because it's really helped me out. And I've, I was actually really surprised. All you guys have to do is head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50. That's five zero to get 50% off. That's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off, guys. Give it a try. That's half. I know. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Let's, we gotta move on to our next section here before this episode becomes as long as 2019's The Irishman. Now on Netflix. It's a oh, section. Oh, I can't wait to get to oh, that. Oh, I can't wait to get that too. It's a section we're going to be calling Dead Fox. Messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. This place is cursed. Cursed. Okay, so some, some notes about Corey Feldman's appearance in this movie. He is back briefly, which I thought was pretty cool of him to do, considering the fact that he was really starting to blow up around this time. Um, he is, of course, the little Tommy that we see in the beginning in the yellow raincoat. Of course, from behind, I think that's not him, right? Does anybody... I, I didn't get yeah, who that was, I, I but don't, I think that was a stunt I, person. I, I felt like maybe it was, but it seemed strange. I was like, well, they had him there in the rain and all that stuff, so maybe they just... Maybe they did shoot that with him. But it felt like it wasn't him. That was filmed in his backyard, it, by the way. And one of the last things they shot, yeah. because they were able to uh, get... Corey Feldman off the set of the Goonies for a minute. Yeah. He is really yeah. this is this is in like mid range Corey Feldman blowing up because he had already done obviously Final Chapter he had already done Gremlins and was about to really uh, go to the next level. Corey Feldman is such and a fascinating. Feldman, go ahead, Mac. Yeah, Feldman said though that he he had wished that he 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 had rather like continued with this franchise and became like the Tommy Jarvis rather than doing yeah. the Goonies. Didn't he say that? He, he, he wanted did, to come back for this movie. He did, but obviously time constraints, he couldn't do it. Also, you know, I'm sure 1985, 86, Corey Feldman probably didn't have the same feelings. You know, I think it's easier to look back and say how I wish I, I had done oh, that. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, well, do you want to work with Danny Steinman or uh, Steven Spielberg? Yeah, do you want to work with Richard Donner or, or Martin Kittrosser? No offense to Martin Kittrosser, of course. Um, so, yeah, he's back. He, he shows up and then... It, 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 as quickly as we see him, he's he's gone immediately. What can I say? Although I will say this, in terms of filing this away, his recurring nightmare of Jason coming back from the actual grave comes true, and Jason lives. So how about that? Think about that. 
I, I do like that. Yeah. I'm not sure if Tom McLaughlin was thinking about that necessarily. <laughs> He's like, hmm, that dream sequence is interesting. I should incorporate that into the. He, he may, he may have. We'll get to that on the next episode. Yeah. But uh, yeah. McLaughlin does have respect. I feel like for the series. Yeah, and and also obviously the old Universal. Horror yes, movie, of course. I'm really looking forward to talking about that. Um, Corey Feldman, thank you for appearing. But listen, the Tommy Jarvis of this movie is played by John Shepard. Can we call this Tommy Jarvis like Jason suspect number one? Because I think <laughs> yeah, he is a absolutely. valid suspect, right? Definitely, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I really like what they do with uh, Tommy's character here because it, in a better movie, in a more uh, well-made movie, it almost feels like, well, the Tommy stuff feels like it belongs in a better movie. It is very, uh, what do I want to say, adult, more adult than your average Friday the 13th nonsense mm-hmm. in a way he's kind of dealing with his visions and reckoning with his past well i think now especially trauma is becoming such a huge part of these horror sequels especially like with laurie strode what we're seeing with the laurie strode and um you know this this new halloween trilogy i mean this is you want to talk about somebody going from carefree kid to totally traumatized you know late teen i mean this this character is the one to do it i agree with you on that vanderbilt Mac, the, the the issue I think Mac, I don't know if you agree, is this is just not as memorable a Tommy as the Corey Feldman or um, Tom Matthews iterations. Would you agree with that? It's not. You know, I almost liken it to, and this actor does a, a far better job at creating a real character. But like Joey in Nightmare on Elm Street Three, how it's like he's yeah. quiet for a lot of the movie, but then, but but you you immediately connect to him. I, I really wanted, I think as I get older, I find this performance a lot more interesting and mm-hmm. uh, gravitate more towards this, this version of Tommy because I'm looking at it from a, I'm, I think when you initially watch the, the film growing up as a kid, you're like, Oh, this sucks. Why isn't it just Corey Feldman? And you don't, yeah. and this this new Tommy's so off putting and strange and just like affected he's, by what had happened to him. He's unlikable. He's unlikable, yeah, he, I think. Right, but but I feel like when, even when you watch it, just like when he has some of those outbursts, like the outbursts he has at the at the breakfast table, and then when Matt throws him up against the wall, I really kind of felt for him because you're just like, man, this yeah. guy is just he's, can't catch a break. He's constantly on edge, and like, and it's just it's kind of sad. You you kind of are like, wow, he is like messed up from what happened. It's really really like. It's tough, and and so I feel like there is there's a little bit of me that kind of liked Shepard's performance in this one. Um, it's just like you said, it it almost feels like it belongs in another movie where mm-hmm. this sequel is just a straight drama dealing with Tommy dealing with trauma. <laughs> you know, um, well, the issue about this character, in addition to so many characters in this movie, Mac, you mentioned this earlier, is just the fact that they're troubled teens. Now, that means that some of them have just gotten into trouble, but I think, obviously, there are a few characters who have some mental issues. And so, for me, <laughs> you know, I love these slasher movies and everything else, but I'm not getting, like, a lot of joy of seeing people who have severe stuttering problems be, you know, murdered. <laughs> like, and I think yeah. that affects my, uh, my enjoyment of this movie. Like, some of these serious topics don't need to be handled by Danny Steinman, I guess. <laughs> But all these characters, despite uh, you know what issues they may have, are also horribly unlikable. That's the other thing. That's the other problem. 
So it's you got this. You've got these contradicting um, tropes, like kind of butting heads. Like not only do you have troubled teens, but some of the troubled teens are just absolute jerks that we've been discussing for months leading up to this episode. Like this is the movie where I would say like at least three quarters of these people are unlikable, right? Like like totally unlikable compared to the first four movies. Yeah, Absolutely. like Eddie, Eddie and Tina, and oh. uh, yeah, we'll get. We, as we, then, we should do as we go through the characters. We should also quickly rate them from like one to ten. <laughs> ten being the biggest jerk, and then one being like the nicest person. Okay, can we do that going yeah. forward? Okay, we, let's, yeah, let's, totally. Hold me to it because we don't want anybody listening at home to say, "Why didn't they talk about what what they said about Robin? Why didn't they talk?" Um, please <laughs> hold me to it. Yeah. Um, but we, so John Shepard, though, the career he had, he actually became uh, much more of a producer later on. I know he became very religious later on, too, and kind of had a, some issues with this movie, but he appeared, I, I wonder, he appears in uh, Crystal Lake Memories and stuff, so he's kind of come back around to the, to the, to the legacy of it all. I wanted to talk to you about that because I wonder if it's like, because I think a couple people, because the guy, uh, we'll get to him later, uh, the kid that plays uh, Reggie, he turned to religion too. And I wonder if the Friday the 13th movies are kind of like uh, a lot of Prince's protégés, like Vanity, <laughs> turned well, to yeah, religion I mean, after hanging out with them. Dana Kimmel from Friday the 13th Part 3. Um, and then I think Jennifer Cook from Part 6 also kind of turned to religion. But that's an interesting, this is like a good... Uh, Feature for I think, like it, just, it just gets yeah, so I think that, it, it gets so wild with Prince that you're like, okay, I I, I can't do this anymore. I I've got to turn to God. And, and exactly. with the Friday the Thirteenth movies, they're so nasty and they're so uh, <laughs> have such an ill reputation. Like, well, you got to turn to Jesus after this. It's the only way. It's the only way you can survive. Well, Shepard is now like... the president of Empower Pictures. M, just the letter M, by the way. And a couple notable movies uh, he produced. Shia LaBeouf's Man Down from a few years ago. The Ger- the Gerard Butler movie Machine Gun Preacher. He produced it. And I regret to inform you, he also produced that Michael Moore parody in American Carol, which we do not have to get into politics-wise. Have, have you watched it? I've seen some scenes from it. It's, it's, it's pretty dreadful. Yeah. We don't need to get into that. Mm. <laughs> Moving on to... <laughs> The next character, Melanie Kinnaman as Pam Roberts. So from a scale from 1 to 10, she's definitely a 1. She's um, one of the most likable people in this movie, right? She's not an asshole. She's, she's, she's great. Yeah, but she's also just kind of boring as far as final girls in this series go. I, I think yeah. her biggest crime is being forgettable. Her biggest crime also yeah. is that she's not in a lot of the movie until the very end. So you don't have a lot yeah. of time with her, you know? Because there's I a lot the of characters. Way. I think, are there? Does this have the most characters of any Friday the Thirteenth? Oh God! Movie? As we will learn from this section, absolutely, absolutely has the most characters. <laughs> I, Mac, know. I kept I writing question, all Mac. these characters. Yeah, yeah. I know it just didn't end when I was doing all these notes. It took me like an hour and a half to do these notes for just the characters. Honestly, um, Mac, we we often talk about how the final girl in these slasher movies always drops the knife or always doesn't go all the way with like a chainsaw. But she uses a chainsaw in this movie and actually seems prepared to kill quote unquote Jason. Do you think that she would have gone through with it if the gas hadn't run out? Yeah, absolutely. I, it's interesting because you know, she throws the chainsaw at, at him once it's like dead. Um, and, and I, I think that she probably would have, 
But the pro, you know, the, again, the problem with this character, though, is like you guys were saying, is that she she's just in, not in a lot of the film at all. Enough for us to really care about her uh, until you know all of a sudden she shows up a lot at the end. But it's just because everybody else is gone. Um, it, it's a very strange, uh, like you said, quote unquote, final girl. I feel like, you know, in in a way, Reggie and and well, I guess Reggie's really like the only like final guy <laughs> you know in, in this in this film really but um yeah i i, I pam's pam's kind of motos to me she's she's kind of like fine but she's very she forgettable she is good with that chainsaw though the chainsaw yeah, oh. duel is uh memorable absolutely and i don't think yeah. it's a performance issue i think it's a character issue because i think she's, yeah, totally. she's good she's a good actor in the movie i don't think that's the issue at all um Melanie Kinnaman, not a lot of credits before or after this, actually. So, uh, oh, can... you know what? I'm what? I'm sorry, Justin. I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but she doesn't survive, right? Because aren't we supposed to assume that Tommy kills her at the end? Oh my God! After final chapter, did he kill his sister? I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 I'm going to assume that he didn't kill her. People on Tommy's conscience. <laughs> I, I'm going to assume he didn't kill her. I'm going to assume that. Just going to Jason, it's, hard, it's, it's harder to like Tommy as a, as a protagonist knowing that he <laughs> murdered a, yeah. like a, one of the counselors at the at at institute. Um, mm, yeah. Let's, we got to move on to, to the next character. We're kind of just going to go through as they're introduced in the movie because you know yeah. people are introduced and killed off at weird times in this movie. It's such a <laughs> fucking disaster. But um, let's talk about Jason Suspect number two, in my opinion. Dr. Matthew Letter, played by Richard Young, one to ten... A one. I mean, this this guy's not a jerk at all. This guy's very understanding. He's very sympathetic towards the kids, as we learned throughout. He's the one that kind of talks Tommy off a cliff during that big kitchen fight, defends mm-hmm. the kids to outside entities. Um, what do we think about, before we get to his, the actor's career, what do we think about this character in the movie, Mac? I like Matt a lot. I, I think that he's a really strong character, and... Unlike all of the previous, you know, like heads of the camp, he's not like this weird creeper. Like you think that he might, maybe he has <laughs> some kind of relationship with Pam, but they don't really play that up at all in the movie. And well, they're also adults. They're, they're both. They look about I, the I same know. Age, you know? And, but that's also why I feel like it's a it's a strong, grounded, like solid character. And, I, and I, even though he's kind of maybe painted as a suspect of sorts, I think. Uh, I don't know. I never. I never really thought that he was, ex- except for when they they reveal that it is him when he falls on the spikes. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I didn't think. I was like, wait a minute. Didn't we just see that he died earlier? I remember. I remember actually having that thought. Like, I don't understand. Like, it's supposed to be Matt. Like, what? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I I like Matt. I think he's. A, I think he's a strong uh, 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 character. Yeah. Mike Mike Vanderbilt. You know, I like him. It's too bad he died because. You know, you lost today, kid, but it doesn't mean you have to like it. That's a great transition. <laughs> and I don't know what else Love we have it. to say. He is the guy, the Indiana Jones-like guy during that uh, prologue or flashback sequence in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And he is great, great yeah. in, that, in those first 15 minutes. Like he's, you totally understand why Indy would kind of look up to this anti-hero, you know? And he's got that great line. He delivers it awesome. I hate saying awesome on podcasts because I sound like such a fanboy. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I'm shuddering oh, it's right so now. It's so good, though. Awesome. It is awesome. Oh. It is but awesome. It is awesome. But you know what? It is. I'm using my rare awesome because it kicks off that movie. That, 
we I could talk about that movie for the rest of the day. I think that is an incredible movie. Um, but yeah, he is the guy that, ju- that hands him the fedora. He hands River Phoenix the fedora. Now, Justin, Matthew, he is found in the woods with like what's seemingly a, a, a nine-inch nail in his head. Uh-oh. Do you think that that scene was filmed? Do you think we there that was cut from the oh, movie or something? Because well, okay, there's no explanation. Point, let's let's it's talk a weird about that. One, yeah. Because while there are a lot of scenes that were clearly cut down, which we'll talk about later on, I think that was just one of the many off-screen deaths in this movie. Because violence as it is, or as many as high as the body count is, so many of these deaths we don't actually see happen. And also, Mac, you mentioned a nine-inch it? nail. It should also be mentioned that in 1989, when this movie took place, Nine Inch Nails Pretty Hate Machine came out. So maybe Roy <laughs> sure had that in the I back of his head. I'm know? sure Vi was a fan. I'm yeah, sure Vi sure was, was a, a fan. Huge, I, I guarantee she loved that album. Um, but, you know, that's the one thing that I thought was really strange is that a lot of these deaths in the film are by, like, a cleaver, like a butcher's cleaver uh, or the mm-hmm. machete. And it's the only one where it's like, okay, so he somehow nailed this guy to the like with this nail on the head you know like i don't know but here's the thing about that mac you think about logistics like he's also jimbo is nailed up to the doorway in final chapter you know it's like yeah you know these 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 guys always find the right tools you know yeah yeah of all the things for this movie i can't i can't come down on it for him finding well no i was just i really thought like because it was such a specific death and it wasn't just like well we found him with his throat slit i thought maybe it was something that had been filmed that got cut but maybe not Maybe not. Yeah, not not that I've read up on, but um, yeah. So we, we let's move on to the next character here, though, and uh, I really like this this character. Really like this performance, and it is Shavar Ross as Reggie the Reckless um, Winter. Um, he is, for all intents and purposes, he's kind of like the Tommy of this movie. And he plays pranks, much like Young Tommy did in Final Chapter. He's precocious, but the most important thing for me about this character is that it's it's very hard, especially in the '80s, to find like really likable kids in these movies. And I think he's just a really likable, relatable child uh, character. Mike Vanderbilt, would you do you like uh, this character in this movie? I like this character a lot. If anything, I mean, uh, he's kind of you when you're watching this, particularly as a youngster. Uh, you're just kind of thrust into this weird world with all these interesting people hanging around. He has a wry comment for everything. And I do think that they kind of didn't do enough with him and Tommy's relationship. I thought there could have been something there where they could have been become more friendly. Yeah. And I, I think that was a wasted opportunity in a movie full of wasted opportunities. They could have had the same dynamic that Tommy has in the final chapter with... Um Rob, right? Is it Rob? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's that he's nice. just got he's just got bad luck from dealing with Jason and uh, the guy from the bike shop in the Different Strokes episode. That kid just can't <laughs> catch a break. Yeah, that he was on six years of Different Strokes with Shavar Ross, and he was also Weasel on Family Matters. We should say, Mac, w- what do you think? What's his best moment in this movie? I think it's maybe an obvious one, which we talked about earlier. But uh, what do you think? What's what's peak Reggie in this movie? Well, it's really funny. I I love. I think that this is this is the character they spend the most time developing between his grandfather and his brother, and you know, like his mm-hmm. whole his whole life almost. You know, like, uh, and I I just love his relationship with 
Pam and and even Tommy. Yes, they, it's a missed opportunity, but you can tell they start laying the groundwork there with the masks. You know, you're like, oh, well, he he scared him as well. And yes, I definitely see him as like the Tommy of this new universe. And wow, that would have been a really strong move and choice if they had continued with Reggie's character going forward or something. You know. Um, oh yeah. But uh, yeah, I think his strongest moment in the in the movie. Uh, I, I mean, I love when he bursts out of the barn uh, with the yeah, the, that's uh, mine. The truck, the um, it, it it's the best and worst moment of the movie for me because it takes so long for him to get to Jason, or, or sorry, Roy, and Roy is just stands there for about five minutes and lets that <laughs> thing hit him. It's so weird. It's like this. It's such a slow so, moving vehicle. I think he's just probably shocked at the fact that Reg was able to maneuver that. that yeah, he's able to operate and move that truck. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's easy. My favorite Reggie, the reckless moment as well. And, uh, yeah, it's a very likable character. I really feel from at the end. Like, I was thinking about him at the very end where he's just kind of asleep on Pam's lap in the hospital, just totally exhausted. Yeah. They do a good job with the terror, especially with, with the kid. They don't shy away from, um, you know, inflicting real terror upon these, these poor kids, you know? Yeah. Um, but I do also really like though, that scene when he finds the bodies in Tommy's room. Like he's yeah, he's sad. like genuinely scared. He's not like trying to be this badass. He's not trying to like, you know. It, he's genuinely scared. And then also when he when he sees Demon, when he sees his brother, I think that's a really genuine moment. And then when he also introduces Pam as his girlfriend, I think it's just really <laughs> it, it, again. He's just so likable. Uh, yeah. It, it's 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 it, it's so weird. It's it's rare that a precocious kid like that is as likable, and. I like on uh, Crystal Lake Memories where even he has a have to has to have a laugh about his his uh, rather effeminate scream. Oh yeah, but to be fair, but that's so, like, so like, real. Twelve, so real, <laughs> so little. It is real. That's exactly right. So but th- real. Th- that's why it, it's like it, it's so high pitched. But I, you think about it, like yeah, kids kids scream like that, and and oh, it's, yeah. it, and there's no and I think that's what makes that sequence right. You know when he when he sees it like feels so real because it's it's just like oh like there's not even like a i'm trying to protect my own you know anything like it's just it's it's raw and (laughs) i don't know i kind of like this time around i was really like oh god this is scary this kid is like just scared to death you know like that shot with the dead bodies in tommy's room left an indelible impression on me like i it it, it's like the one thing that really stuck out from that movie when i first saw it well i have a question do you think if this was um if this was like Halloween 2018, when he opened the door and saw the bodies in there, he would have just said, oh, shit. No. Sorry. Once again, we can't digress. On <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. I know, you know, it, it's not it's not an awful movie. But I, I think it's pretty. It's OK. Anyway, I can't, I can't keep apologizing. I can't keep apologizing. Let's move on. Now, to wait. Now, wait. That, for God's sake. Well, wait, 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 wait. Before you before you move on, though, I think another thing that adds to that that scary moment is um you know like robin's in there like half naked and there's just it's so unnerving for like a small boy to see yeah something yeah, like yeah. that and then also see like this this woman that he knows like naked and it's just like and there's blood and it's like it's 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 overkill it's like over sensory overload i feel and and and, he, and you buy it from his performance i really i really like reggie in this yeah well let's move on to our next uh character here i think this is one of Mike Vanderbilt's favorites. It's uh, Sheriff Cal Tucker, played by Marco St. John. I've got some notes on his career. Uh, Mike Vanderbilt. I, I do too. If you want to, if you want to lead it off, go ahead. 
Well, I, I, I know that he had a pretty good uh, character actor career before this, but he delivers one of my favorite lines in Friday the Thirteenth: A New Beginning, when uh, Ethel rolls up at the home and is <laughs> says, "Morning, Ethel." That tickles me. That cracks me up every fucking time. Because <laughs> he knows what he's in for. He knows what he's in for. Yeah, he know a small character moment. He know he knows what he's dealing with here. It's almost a comic performance between him and the deputy, right? Which also feels like it's coming from another movie in some ways. But well, it's also, I think that's, yeah. I was gonna say it's that's that Danny grounded. Steinman touch. Something he said about the making of High Rise, his, uh, his adult film from 1973, was that when you when you make when you make a movie, you can tell what people, especially when you're dealing with a you know a sex film, you, people can tell what you're into. And High Rise is a very funny movie, and Danny Steinman always said he had a sense of humor about sex, and I think a lot of that humor that's in this movie comes from him. It's a little bit slapsticky. He gives a yeah. pretty good uh, exposition at the very end, or, or you know, explanation at the very end. I think it's a pretty good performance there. I mean, he's a, he's a good character actor. He's been around the block. Mac, do you have any thoughts on the character before we get into his background? Uh, no, but I definitely have a, a note on his background, which is really weird. Well, what can I say? Go, go for it, Mac. I think um, we might have the same note. I just watched the movie randomly tightrope Clint Eastwood's tightrope yeah and he's the villain <laughs> oh shit I know he's, he's the, the villain, main man. villain oh I didn't know he and, played the I mean, villain yeah. and they introduce him in, I mean it's like literally the first sequence they don't they don't try to pretend like you don't know who it is the whole movie like it, they blatantly show him within the first like five minutes of the movie uh, wow so I, I just watched that and then I mean like the day before and then I watched this and I was just like, oh my God, like what are the chances? Like it's just St. So John's over here. But uh, yeah, I really, I, I like his character in the movie. It's one, it's finally, we have like a sheriff that's actually feels really level-headed uh, except, you know, well, I mean, obviously when he's like, it's Jason and uh, that, that whole and you bit. Almost the, get, you almost get the sense when he says to the, uh, the mayor that it's Jason, that he's kind of cracking wise and you realize no yeah. this guy is dead serious yeah he's throwing <laughs> ashtrays yeah. against the wall this guy's extremely upset he's throwing glass ashtrays yeah. against the wall he's so upset well the and the actor, other deputy is just sleeping in oh the- it's <laughs> so weird anyway but listen this actor mac i thought you were mentioning this but uh first of all very notable he is the really obnoxious truck driver in thelma and louise that appears throughout and he's it's his truck that they blow up at the end of the movie after they get him out to, to oh, seduce right. him or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. Totally different character in that movie. It's a good performance. Uh, here's something I, I just I just didn't recognize him because it had been so many years. He plays Davis. Uh, he plays Steve Zahn's father on Trimme. He's the father right. that looks down on him, Dr. McAlary. So all of you David Simon uh, Trimme fans out there, Steve Zahn's character Davis, yeah, his father is... Played by Marco St. John. So, good career. Good character yeah. work for Marco St. John over the last 40 years, really. Plus, somebody I literally want... I don't even want to... Listen, I don't even want to hear either of your opinions. I, we got to move it on, but I just have to say... <laughs> Richard Lineback plays Deputy Dodd. And he, for you Losers Club listeners out there, he plays Poke in The Stand. He's one of the people that uh, Stu knows that gets sick, and they, they talk in the van briefly when they're being taken away to the uh, medical center. That's all. We, we got to move on. I can't, we cannot talk about Richard Lindbeck yeah, as Deputy Dodd anymore <laughs> because, because we have to move on to 
Oh my god, I apologize. Likeability factor, Marco St. John, one to ten. Mac, what do you give him? Oh, uh, I give him a three. Okay, so he's almost extremely likable. Um, okay, sh- uh, Van- Vanderbilt. The sheriff we're talking? Yeah. yeah. Yep. A one. He's one. I think he's one of the most likable people in the film. Okay, Reggie the Reckless. I'm going to give him a, a, a one as well. Like, I'll oh, give him yeah, a one. one. Okay, cool. All right. Deputy Dodd, who cares? Okay. Um, next character, uh, Debbie Sue Voorhees. How about the last name? Unbelievable, right? Debbie Sue yeah, Voorhees. crazy. As Tina McCarthy. Uh, this is a non-character who is absolutely hired because, well, listen, she was a Playboy bunny. We don't need to get uh, <laughs> too much into it. She looks amazing. No questions there. Stone cold facts. Absolutely beautiful. Top wonderful. five. Top five. Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, girls. I don't know. A- absolutely. In terms of in terms of well, in terms of characters, bottom five. In terms of um, <laughs> you're, you're getting like the the beautiful woman out there. You, I would argue the top other five. Attri- the other attributes that re- uh, get you hired on a Friday the Thirteenth. Exactly. So. It's not that hard to get, especially this era of film. Um, she's Tina McCarthy, and in terms of likability, though, a one to ten being the word. I mean, she's like what? She's like an. Uh, I'll say she's a nine. Very unlikable, very mean. Yeah, I thought I, I'm going to go with like an eight or nine. Yeah, I, I was going to go with five. I, I mean, there's so many unlikable characters, so I feel like the curve is messed up. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, but I'll give I'll give her five, and you know. <laughs> She probably gets away with it because, well, you know. Yeah, and she's also maybe she's following Eddie. That's why I'm not as harsh on her. Maybe she's following his his lead a little bit more. She's more laughing at him as opposed to the situation. But we can't get into a psychological her, explanation of this character because her. what the hell are we doing here? I will say this her though: death. her yeah. death is something, and her death you don't yeah. even see it. But this is a good example that you know I'm not going to say Danny Steinman should be known for his restraint, but. I think this actually works better just seeing the pressure that the hedge clippers are putting or being put under and then that sound effect of it kind of like, I guess, breaking the bridge of her nose. I don't know, but it's really good. It's, in terms of effectiveness, you you feel it. I don't know. It's good. It's a good For, one. You know, it's funny because Roy having such piercing eyes, there's a lot of deaths that revolve around the eyes. You are correct. Film. There's a couple more coming up shortly. Um, but, you know, we've been talking about the, the lack of character but Debbie Sue Voorhees is actually quite an accomplished uh, professional. I mean, she left acting eventually. She became a journalist. She went back to school. She became a journalist. She also taught acting for film at Eastern New Mexico University. This is all from IMDb, by the way. Um, She's the second uh, Friday the 13th starlet to go into uh, journalism. Uh, Tracy Savage from Friday course, the 13th from the, Part 3. From the, from the OJ trial. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And she also taught British literature and journalism in Texas and New Mexico. She is a journalist. She wrote and edited for the Dallas Morning News, Fort Worth Star-Telegram. I mean, these are major papers in Texas. Um, also, she's a novelist. <laughs> and something very uh, notable for this podcast, she um, wrote and directed 13 Fanboy. There's a trailer for this online. And this stars many actors from the Friday the 13th franchise playing themselves being stalked by a killer who is a fan of the series. So she's... Well, that's fun. Uh, she's I'm changing multi-talented. my answer. She's multifaceted. She, 
She's a number 10 now. I hate people that can just do everything and be good <laughs> no, at it. Yeah. And, and, and uh, are good looking. No, the hell with now them. We're, we're, <laughs> the, the, the 1 to 10 is the character, not the actor. <laughs> yes, of course. Please. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to hopefully one day checking out that 13th fanboy uh, whenever it gets released. Um, okay, let's move on to, I would say at this point, you could argue this is the biggest jerk of the franchise. So I'm going to give him a 10 in terms of the unlikability. John Robert Dixon is Eddie Kelso. What do you think? Is this, this is a 10, right? Even the name, like <laughs> if you name your kid, Eddie Kelso, Eddie you know Kelso. he's going to be a jerk. Uh, Eddie Kelso, huh? Mac, nine. Yeah. Or, I, I just, you don't get enough of him at, to, to really gauge anything, you know, like he shows it on the know. beginning for like two seconds. And then like, he, you know, he pulls a joke on Tommy, but like, you know, Tommy's Tommy's obviously like extremely sensitive at that moment, and he's also picking um, on him too. Does he sort of like kind of like not pushing him, but kind of like, hey, well, we, we, I don't know. He does. He he definitely provokes him. I, I I'm gonna go with a nine. In terms uh, of what we get, I'm gonna go full ten. In terms of the the limited character we get, <laughs> just goofing off, getting arrested, getting in trouble, picking on people. Ah, uh, this guy's a ten, and I'm also jealous of him because he. This character obviously uh, has an another Tina, another hunk, another yeah, hunk, an absolute hunk too. But uh, hunk. practices practices safe sex, brings along a roll of condoms. Correct. Um, Which was this might be the first condom we see in the Friday the Thirteenth series. I, th- oh man, I think I feel like there's mention Oof. of them in part two. Yeah, I th- but I don't we'll know if they look into. You'll we'll have to do a deep dive into the. You know, prophylactics of the Friday Thirteenth films in the future. <laughs> but yeah, here's yeah. something about this: the sex scene in, in this forest was actually even longer. Like Danny Steinman has bragged about how long it was. He says it was like shooting a porno in the woods. And he would, he Danny Steinman wouldn't know anything about shooting a porno That's because right. High Rise was shot by a gentleman named Danny Stone. Danny Stone, everybody, not Danny Steinman. Danny, <laughs> not Stone. Danny Steinman. Completely different people. All right. Well, listen. You want to talk about back to back? Effective, memorable deaths. Uh, Eddie Kelso yeah, is the belt yeah. wrapped around the tree that crushes the skull, and you, once again, Classic. you don't see a lot of it, but you see enough. And I think that's a good yeah. example of of um, just showing just enough to get the sensation down when when that uh, belt finally breaks. And, and that, uh, death, that that's really that's a good one. That's a good one. Kind of baffles me because everything else is done with a knife or something like that, or the hedge clippers. But why did Roy have the leather strap? Like to put the 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 branch through. Like, what would you have that for in your day to day? Well, Mike, if you're watching carefully, um, when we first see Roy, that's the belt he has. Oh my God! Now, Mike, oh, Mike, Mike, really? Mike, I'm absolutely kidding. There's no. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say. I was like, what? Oh, shut, shut the, the fuck the respect, up. The respectability that this movie would have would be would have finally been you know <laughs> elevated well, a little I bit. Thought, it's like you know, actually, he was thinking about that. I thought, and I didn't really look at it too well, but I, I just thought it was Eddie or or uh, was it Tina's belt, and he just used it because he was there. And however, he does have like that wooden stick through the loops, and the loops are big, and the loops are like they're they're like seemingly metal, and you're like, okay, this does seem like maybe a device that he would have, but where? <laughs> but you are true. That is right. Where would he get it? But I guess I kind I of know. also bring that back to the the nail in the head like you know he he's he he just did it he he had these he things had that, like he where did he get it. the meat cleaver where did he get oh, i guess he got the meat cleaver from from ethel 
I'm That's a good point. It. That's a good point. That makes well, sense. Well, listen, this, this but, actor's yeah. only other credit is um, appropriately 1988's Assault of the Killer Bimbos. Can't imagine a better movie to go out on for Mr. John Robert Dixon. So let's move on to the next character. Matt, you mentioned her. Carol Locatell as, I would call her a fan favorite, Ethel Hubbard. Mac, what do you think about this particular performance, this character? You know, on on its own, I think like the Ethel and Junior character, like I think that's funny in any other movie. It's so incredibly annoying in these films. It feels so out of place. It's it's almost like the Keystone Cops in Part Five of Halloween. Uh, oh, yeah. It yeah. just it's it's like what? Are, why are these? Why do these characters exist except to extend the body count? It's so bizarre in an already bizarre movie filled with bizarre characters. So in some ways it kind of weirdly is okay, but it's definitely like played up for laughs. It, it's it's easily oh, yeah. the, 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 the comic relief. I think that Carol does a great job as that character. You know, I think she, she plays it really well. Um, mm. And I would say that she's a, she's an absolute 10 though. Oh um, yeah, <laughs> on, the, on, the, on, the, on the jerk level, you know. I just scale. love when she uh, she does look over the junior and she just says, "Would you shut the fuck up?" <laughs> like just like oh, flat man. out, like. Well, I mean, has, she has calls her good... son. She calls her son a big dildo, a fuckwad. I mean, this is mother of the year. <laughs> you know, to be fair though, you know what? We coddle these kids too much. And we do. We need to start calling junior kids is, dildos yeah. more junior, often. <laughs> junior is, is still living at home. He's obviously in his thirties or forties, and if he's if he's not Irish, then he just needs to get out of there. Uh, yeah. no, no shots to, of course, all of our Irish listeners. Are we? You know how you know Jesus was Jesus was an Irishman, right? Oh, wait, what? What's this? What's this bit? You never you never heard you know, how you, you know how you know Jesus was Irish? How's that? He lived at home till he was thirty, and his mother thought he was God. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a great show tonight. <laughs> um, we've got the bits, now, we got the old jokes here. But Mac, are you going to mention yeah. this or what? <laughs> yes, yes. Mac, oh, yeah, Mac no. Here. Well, yeah. I think this is I think this is what I ended up coming to. Um, but I I think I might have a different take, but <sighs> She does talk. She talks to a cat, I believe, right? No, 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 no. That's I know she on. talks to the chicken. Yes. The dead chicken. But I think it's a dead so chicken, so that to me does not make sense. I think that, yes, yeah, okay, she's so also we'll, we'll Hold that then. Hold that then. So you're saying yeah. th- this does not count. I don't she's think not, talking to a dead animal is not, yeah, she's not actually like communicating. Unless okay. Vanderbilt's right and she can. She can communicate with the dead. Oof, uh, this is a whole other thing. But later on, I believe she does talk. She does. Mac, to it's another character. We'll talk about that. No, it's a different character. So hold that thought. Oh, it is a different character. Okay, that's what, that I'll, is what I, I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, um, yeah. So this was my first like. Oh wait, 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 wait. Is this is this a moment? But uh, <laughs> no, sadly no. So sorry, we've not reached the character talks to animal yet yeah, reads reads well, animals thoughts yeah, okay we'll get to that later she, on she, she knows how to talk to junior does that count yeah really no joke well she gets a cleaver through the front window into the head and and, and falls into her own stew squeezing tomato on the way out god bless her i feel like that's a very that death is a very uh steve minor-esque death i yeah it's, I'd oh, see that. it's, yeah. it's kind of got an odd 
off-kilter sense of humor to it. Yeah. And it's kind of one of those deaths where you actually applaud, which you're starting to find more and more of in this franchise as it goes along. Now, Carol Locatell has, has seriously worked steady on TV for over 50 years. She first appeared on The Flying Nun, which starred a young Sally oh, wow. Field back in 67. And she, she just recently popped up on Shameless on Showtime. So she's had a, a nice career there. And I was looking at her filmography. I mean, it's like literally every year she's got a couple shows she appears in. So good on her. I, I think it, it's worth talking about her for a minute. That uh, on, I was on the pot and the pendulum when we were talking about character actors and how there's just not a market, it seems, for female character actresses. Oh, I agree. And, and, but I think Carol Locatell is a perfect example of somebody who does it right, and uh, it's good to see her, that she's still out there working. She's an acting coach now, too, yes? Yeah, that's also correct. So, I mean, yeah, because you're right, Mike, because usually when we, we, we talk about these certain character actors, we always refer to it as, uh, quote-unquote, that guy. You know, because yeah. it's so dominated by, by men. Like, like, I think of like Mark Shepard, who's been working as a great character actor for the last you know, 30 years. But you don't, yeah, you don't have a lot of Carol Lockethels out there. But she's definitely a one and one. You know, she's she's somebody who just keeps popping up and does good work. And uh, yeah. it's ooh, a memorable my voice breaks, but uh, it's a memorable performance in sure, this film. Sure. Okay, now let's go to another uh, ten of ten in terms of the jerk scale. Um, and that character's name is Junior Hubbard, played by Ron Sloan. I mean, this guy eats soup. With a full fist on a spoon. <laughs> this is the type of person he is. Well, you know, this character for me is like a, a 15. That sequence <laughs> yeah. where right before he gets killed and he's just going, ah, just yelling. I was so re- I was so ready for him to die. Talk about characters where you, you are like excited when they get killed. I was so mm-hmm. happy when his head gets just chopped off by that cleaver. And it's funny because I was laughing while I was watching the role because I, I was kind of like thinking like, who would play this character now? And I was like, oh, you know, Chris Pratt. <laughs> 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 I, I could see Mike, Chris Pratt that. playing Junior in the remake Ugh. of Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. Um, it would be called like uh, Friday the 13th World. Um, <laughs> you mentioned the fact that he gets his head chopped off. Once again, that scene was cut down. But of course... It was readily available for any child to go to a video store, pick up the box, and look on the back because yeah, so we weird. see the machete going into the neck. So once again, I don't know what people are thinking about in the MPAA versus you know VHX VHS box creators, but there you go. If you want to see a little bit more, look on the back of that box. Yeah, the, this character is—it's like Franklin 2.0. <laughs> It's unbelievable. It's unbearable. He is and that motorcycle scene goes on so long. I've never been so happy to see somebody's head get chopped off in a movie. I mean, I'm sure there's more annoying than Franklin and Shelley combined. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Oh, this makes Shelley look like like Amy Steele on Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. I mean, this is in terms of like likability. <laughs> Ron Sloan, God bless. And listen, it's not like it's a bad performance. He's definitely he, delivering. Like, oh yeah, he does like it. The, up, this yeah. is the biggest jerk, slow-witted guy. You know, he his does, he line reading. His line reading about, uh, and she's going to cut you into itty-bitty pieces, my friend. Oh, God. Yeah, it's, it's so great. It's so memorable. You think that the best moment will be getting body slammed, but then it's um, getting his head chopped off. Actually, he somehow tops it. Okay. In terms of, oh, here we now. Now we're entering into some interesting territory here. I think the tens are going to continue. No, I take it back. This is complicated. 
because we got Dominic Brascia as Joey Burns. Now, Joey is extremely annoying, right? But he's not a jerk by any means, right? He just wants to be liked. So an annoying, 10 out of 10, right? Annoying, 10 out of 10. But, but it's like the... Light, into, yeah, it's like the Franklin thing, though. It's like clearly like something's off about Joey. So I feel like when I was a kid, I was like, oh, this guy's just like annoying. Like, so you're kind of like all about it when 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 Vic takes the axe to him. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it. This is like one of those situations where this movie gets really muddy and kind of confusing. It's like you're painting these characters kind of as annoying characters, but they clearly have, there's something like mentally off about some of them. So it's like, yeah. I don't know how I'm supposed to be feeling. Am I supposed to be feeling sympathy? Am I supposed to be feeling, you know, like, um, actually annoyed by these characters? Like, how, like why, like, am I supposed to be sad that this person died or happy or, you know, it's like, it's such a weird, a weird batch of characters to be, um, put in well, this situation. Van- Vanderbilt, you pointed it out. And Mac alluded to it here is just you've got so you've got these unlikable characters, but they're also some of them are like you know uh, mentally troubled. So he might even be on like the spectrum if you look at it through today's lenses. So yeah. my, Vanderbilt, is it is it just a jarring scene for this to happen so early in the movie and have him be so brutally murdered like in the middle of the day by a a non Jason? I think at this point, though, in the series, that's exactly what people want. Because I believe Paramount told Steinman and the gang there has to be an act of violence every five minutes or something like that. Oh, my God. Five or ten minutes, like something has to happen, which is why I think there are so many kind of oddball characters that are almost introduced just to get killed, which we're going to get to in a minute. Uh, I will say, though... This is the first time I really noticed, maybe it's just from watching it on television so many times, sitting down to watch it for this podcast, how much you see of his brutally uh, chopped up body when the ambulance driver, the other ambulance driver, uh, lifts up the sheet. See his hand, his arm on the back of his back. His arm is on top of him. Disgusting. It's off. Oh, which, by the way, you can also see on the back of the video box is <laughs> his chopped up body. <laughs> so once again, if, if you're a kid and you, and you stumble into the video store back in the day, there it is. There's all the violence. Um, it's such a memorable scene, though. I mean, listen, we still parodied it at the very beginning of this episode. You know, you've got a real attitude problem. You know, it's just you, you can't well, quote it. It's just unbelievable. It, it's even wilder when you think about all this could have been avoided if Vic would have just taken the fucking chocolate bar. Like, yeah. Well, it's like, it, you know, what, what came first, chicken or the egg? I mean, is it, is it, is it Joey's fault for being annoying? Is it, is it, is it Robin and Violet's fault for not just letting him help? Is it, they, you know, they should have just let, yeah, yeah, they should have just let him help. But I mean, he was going to mess it up. He had, cho- he I've had never seen anybody put over his hands. I have yeah. never seen anybody eat a chocolate. It's like, uh, when you watch Samuel L. Jackson eat the muffin in Pulp Fiction, I've never seen anybody eat a muffin like that. <laughs> and I've, like, I've never seen anybody eat a chocolate bar quite like Joey does. But Even a child. That's the thing. Like, looking back, you're like, wow, this character, I think this character has some actual mental issues. He's not just annoying. And it makes this whole thing just so unpleasurable to watch happen. Yeah, you know? yeah. In a weird way. I mean, obviously now, it's memorable, but still like, oh, God, this is so... This is what I was talking about the last episode when I said this movie is kind of just sleazy. 
in a lot of ways. And this is one of those examples of just, you're kind of just, it's like a guilty watch in a lot of ways, you know. Not, that's that Steinman touch coming through. That's Diamond. That's, no, that, that's that Steinman touch because Savage Streets is extremely sleazy, but it works in that film. For as brutal and violent as the Friday the 13th films were, I don't think they were ever sleazy until this one. And it is off-putting. Well, there's also something... This actor didn't get a lot of credits over the years, but uh, and I really don't want to talk about this on the episode... But you can Google this person's name, and he's going to show up in some news items revolving around uh, the two Corys. We'll leave it at that. Let's just move on, shall we? I don't want to talk about that during this episode. It's very grim material. And he actually passed away a couple years ago. Uh, Dominic Brasher did in 2018 Natural Causes. So um, the next character is obviously another character who's in the scene, who was responsible for Joey's demise. And as Mark Venturini, as Vic Faden... Who I would also say was a, another Jason suspect, right? Uh, Mac, what do you think about that? Yeah, I guess, except for the fact that he's carted away by the police. like right. But in I always the, thought that maybe he know, broke like, out or something. He broke out. That was my but, sus- but don't suspect. Don't you think that they would have said that or they thought they would have, like the, the, the police would have mentioned at some point, like, oh, maybe it's that guy that broke out earlier that killed that guy with an axe. You know what I mean? Like they just, <laughs> there's multiple sequences with the police and they're not mentioning him at all. But I'm saying, like, um, when you see him being wheeled away and he's got that smile on his face, I'm saying that you're watching for the first time and this moment happens. You're thinking, oh, oh yeah, you, you think, okay, yeah. maybe maybe he'll he'll be the one coming back. Yeah. Oh, I, something I also noticed this time around. When Demon is in the bath, the, 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 the like, Porta John, in graffiti on the wall behind him says, Faden was here. Yes. And I thought, I like that little, you know, Oh, really? Uh, nod to Vic. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. And I wonder if like the cast just like they were like, hey, we need graffiti on this thing. And they just had the cast go in there, write a bunch yeah. of shit. And That's I just really thought great. that you was kind of cool. That, yeah. that takes me back to that little bit I had about Roy's belt. Like this is actually like a nice little attention to detail that's in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, fun. Pretty cool. Uh, yeah. You know, it's obviously a small role, but do I believe that he had the, cap- the capability of murdering Joey? Absolutely. Um, Vanderbilt, what do you think about this performance and the unlikability uh, scale, of course? A, a question for you guys. Is this the only time somebody in a Friday the 13th movie is murdered, but not by the main killer of the film? I really have to think about this. One, so I think it is. No, no. Because think about, uh, doesn't uh, Bernie in part seven... Does, oh, does he, he responsible kill the mother for some deaths? Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, but still, technically, yeah. Jason, yeah. it does it though. Oh, I guess so. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I, I guess. Really you call him Bernie. <laughs> you call him Bernie. Yeah, just call him Doctor Bernie. Doctor Bernie. Bernie. I'm forgetting. I think um, I think it, it's a great performance from uh, this guy. And uh, I was reading in that book that I have, the Making uh, Friday the Thirteenth: The Legend of Camp Blood, that he was apparently just the nicest guy in the world. And I oh, don't yeah. think you get that off him at all. He is so menacing and off-putting in this movie. But why? <laughs> he seems like, compared to all the other people, all the other kids hanging out at this home, I don't know. I don't know if I would have sent him there. I would have found a special <laughs> spot for him. He seems well, a little bit different than Joey and Vi. Well, that's the thing about this house, right? Like, the, all these people have different issues. Even Tommy's extremely violent, but he's also very quiet. You know, it's such a weird combination of characters but i don't know i maybe we're 
I don't know a lot about the mental health uh, facilities in, in America, so maybe but, I shouldn't be commenting too much. But it's a weird, that it's was a my, weird uh, set. Yeah, that was my thing though with that character. I even when I watched watched it for the first time, I wasn't sure because he was handling an axe. I wasn't really sure if he was like working there. Or if he was one of the kids. But then they say that, well, no, they they set a place for everybody at breakfast, I guess. But, yeah, I just thought I never got the feeling. I I got the feeling that he wasn't one of the trouble kids, that he was just kind of like an asshole kid that worked there or something. However... Yeah, I, I still confused as to why he was chopping so much wood and like what seemed like the dead of summer. But uh, <laughs> hey, nothing, doesn't hurt to prep. Doesn't hurt to prep. But you know what? I'm going to give him a ten because <laughs> the guy's a jerk. <laughs> the guy's a jerk, I guess. Uh, listen, something notable though. He appeared in another horror movie that same year. Do you know what the movie was? Either of you? I want to say. Return of the Living Dead. You are correct. He used suicide. Yes. And Return of the yes. Living Dead. So we have two. Another two people in this yeah. movie that are in that movie. We um, luck. We love. We love Return of the Living Dead. Uh, it's it's so much fun. I could do a whole thing oh, on yeah, that movie totally. too. Sadly, though, sad note. He he died in 1996 from leukemia. So he died really oh, young. Geez. Sad. A sad story. But I'll tell you what. Um, you know, we're still talking about a couple of his movies literally today. So, you know, that's it's a it's a it's a nice little legacy to have, I guess. Uh, memorable performances all around. From absolutely, him. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, great death scene. I'm trying to living dead too. Great death scene. Okay, yeah. So this this next character has a major, or the actor I should say has a major tie-in to last season's uh, episodes of Halloweenies, and that actor is Tiffany Helm. We'll talk about that in a second, but she plays. The aforementioned, we talked about a lot earlier, Violet Moraine. Not a lot of character work here, but a hell of a dancer. I'm, you know, it's funny. We talked about her so much in the music section. I don't know. We can, I guess yeah, we, can, we, we can cut straight to the death, right? Let's just cut straight to the death scene. Um, she gets a knife to the gut, but originally, this death scene was much more grotesque. It was supposed to go, apparently, like through her crotch. Yeah. And all the way up. Really? Which would have been, yeah. Believe it or not, the censors were like, I don't think we're going to let that happen. They, well, I think they. I don't even know if they uh, submitted that to the Senate. Yeah. No, they shot it. The story is that they shot it from that book that I was reading. Mm. Uh, but I don't know if they ever even submitted that to the Senate. Or at least they set up the gag and maybe tested it. But I think they shot it. But I don't even know if they'd give that to the censors at this point. Because as you said, this one seems to be pre-edited in a way at this point in the series. This is another example of somebody who you kind of see her a couple times in the movie. But you get no sense of a character until she's about to die 30 seconds later. And this was not something that was happening in those, those first few Friday the 13th movies. This is really when we're talking about, like you said, Vanderbilt, we need to have a death every five minutes. Like Characters, we don't care anymore. This really is just now all about the kills. And she's definitely a, an example of that. Granted, it's a memorable dance. But, you know, I, I could probably even a, tell you what she sounds like if you, if you played the sound She's got a good bite. book, so that's what makes her memorable too. Yeah, definitely. Like a testament to the costuming. Well, here's some news, not even news necessarily, here's some info about Tiffany Helm. Did any of you see in the Tallgrass, the Stephen King adaptation? No. No. She's in it. She's a gas station attendant in that movie. She looks totally different oh. without that, that crazy makeup <laughs> on, by the way. But here's something important. Not only did she appear in an episode of Freddy's Nightmares, 
Her mother in real life is Brooke Bundy, who plays Kristen's mom in the Elm Street movies. How about that? Oh, that's cool. And I think Brooke, actually Brooke Bundy said that she channeled some of the issues that she had with her, you know, her teenage daughter at the time into the, into the relationship between the mother and, uh, and Kristen. So interesting little tie in there to the, to Elm Street. Definitely. I, th- I think, yeah. um, uh, well, let's move on to our next character here that you want to talk about a run for this char- for this actor, Juliet Cummins as Robin Brown. Well, let's, first of all, let's, let's talk about her character before we get into her career. This is exciting because we were trying to figure out, well, I mean, I knew what movie that, 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 that she's watching with, um, with Jake. <laughs> but Mike Vanderbilt watched that movie in question. So, Mike, you want to talk a little bit about A Place in the Sun? <laughs> the, the movie that they're watching is 1951's A Place in the Sun with yes. Montgomery Cliff, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, and Shelley Winters. Yep. It's a nice, it's actually, it was, a, I don't know if I want to say enjoyable because it's, kind of uh, bleak, but it's a nice mix of like romantic melodrama and film noir and uh, courtroom drama uh, towards the end of it. But it revolves around a character drowning in a lake. No spoilers, but I'll spoil anyway. I, I can think of three movies that Shelley Winters is in in which water <laughs> caused her death, or at least played a part in her death. Can you name the two other movies besides this one? I, I, can, name, I can name one, Poseidon Adventure. Okay, what about the other one? At least water is involved in, in, in her death. Mm, I, I don't know. Night of the Hunter. Oh, oh good call. Yeah. That great scene of the car underwater with her death. Anyway, I'm spoiling all these old movies. You should check them out. They're good. Uh, um, Place in the Sun I would recommend. And like, it's great seeing Liz, young Liz Taylor and young uh, Shelley Winters. It's sad because Montgomery Cliff had gotten to like a really, really bad car accident when he was younger. And it really derailed his career and just caused a lot of issues. Very sad story for him, too. A lot of sad stories with uh, <laughs> all these, these people who were involved in this movie in some way. Perhaps perhaps this was a cursed film. He, this should also oh, be. Talk, poltergeist, you know, cry your eyes out. But here we go. New beginning. Um, she's. What do we know about Robin? Well, we know she's a fan of old cinema. She, she's watching this. She's got a James Dean poster in her bedroom. Uh, that's about all we really know. But here's something important I want to point out and why censorship is bad. Okay, this is, this is my... I'm going to go Capitol Hill with this argument. Oh, so when Jake is confessing to her how much he loves her or whatever, right? She laughs in his face. And he kind of leaves. Now there's a scene... She's already taken off her shirt in her bedroom, so obviously we can't see this on USA. But she kind of looks in the mirror and says... And she feels bad about what she did. Now, because we don't have that scene in USA, we think she's a total jerk. We think she's a 10 out of 10 on the jerk scale. But that scene definitely <laughs> helps her character out a little bit. So, you know, I understand we can't see nudity in folks. I, you know, actually, I don't quite understand why that's such a big deal anymore. But USA, if you ever air reruns A New Beginning, I insist that you have that scene. If you need to blur it out, that's fine. But you have to have the remorse for the Robin Brown character <laughs> to fully take her to that next level. Am I going too far with this, uh, Mac? What do you think? No, I mean, I think there are ways now where they can just like blur that stuff. I think that you absolutely need, I think she's she's probably like a five. She's just like yeah. normal. She's a normal kid with problems that has a weird reaction to someone saying, I want to make love to you. Yeah, which like, is I'll probably weird. laugh as well. <laughs> yeah. 
I would have laughed as well, but like, you know, it's coming from a uncomfortability place. I think she knows that Jake's like, it's Jake, right? Yes. That she, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think she, she knows that Jake is a sweet guy and just obviously, you know, I mean, it, also we get the, we get the, uh, the drop that, uh, they've, they've both, at least the two of them have been there for eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, which kind of colors a little bit of like the the uh, <laughs> I was going going somewhere really ridiculous with that, but ultimately it colors like their relationship in terms of <laughs> you know how long some of these people have probably been sure, there, and, sure. and maybe some of them have been there a lot longer than that too. But um, I think Vic had been there for but t- yeah, 10, 15 for two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, I was well, gonna say ask. for two characters that they barely go into, you know, like that you get you get more history there in in like two seconds, like, and then they're dead. Is, apparently, this is like, yeah, and then they're gone. All right. Well, listen, he, she also has a very violent death that was cut. You're supposed to see the the the, the machete or the knife, or whatever, go through her stomach, much like we see in uh, parts three and, and part one. Uh, here, let, let me tell you this run that she had, though. This is a great little run for Juliet Cummins. So she was killed by Jason, kind of, in this movie. She's killed by Norman Bates in Psycho 3. She has a brief love affair oh. with genre legend Jeff Fahey in that movie. <laughs> genre legend. Some, right. some more piercing eyes. Talk about piercing Absolutely. eyes. I would, I would, if he yeah. was Jason in this, that would been great. Um, and also fell victim to the Driller Killer in Slumber Party Massacre 2. How about that? Oh, so that's a little run. That's a pretty. There. That's some, a that's little, a good horror run. Yeah, right. Some like, little iconic '80s horror uh, killers in that little run there. By the way, Slumber Party Massacre Two, which by the way is the same director of Rock Roll High School Forever, starring Corey Feldman, who was in this movie. Um, not bad. There's something really cheap but good about it, and it's got a really disturbing ending. So. I think it's still on Shutter. Check out Slumber Party Massacre 2. It's also got the uh, the Star of uh, Wings in it. I forgot her name. Anyway, congratulations to Juliet Cummins. We got to move on. This I got to say, though, I, this is uh, something I noticed watching this movie, and we can discuss it with her, is that this is where the first time in this series where the breasts in a Friday the 13th film seem, seem ultra-gratuitous. Oh, yeah, this is just, let's just yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> Yeah. Showing him for showing him's sake, and perhaps this is more a commentary on the Joey character. But of all the times to start professing your love to everybody in the house, why do you do it the day after Joey was murdered? Yeah, that's a good point. And everybody, and the night that everybody is missing. Like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to Jake. We'll get to Jake in re, a second. But let's just room, Jake. let's just run through these next few here, okay? Because yeah, they're hardly even characters, honestly. Okay. Um, Duke Johnson, who is the, the slimeball ambulance driver who calls the kids, quote-unquote, pussies when they see the dead body of Joey, you know, mocks Roy. Uh, Reggie and Pam discover his dead body with a slit throat. Once again, this is just about amping up the, 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 the body count, right? Nothing special. Okay. Yeah. Okay, now, now we got to get to these two who wandered off the set of Stephen King's It. Uh, Corey Parker as Pete Lindley and Anthony Burrell as Vinnie Manello. Two greasers from 1958 who time traveled to 1989. <laughs> we should specify. Um, just aside, you know, they're, they've got some car trouble. Uh, Pete gets a slip throw from the back seat, which is clearly edited. 
which is clearly <laughs> they do that. Mac, you talked about earlier. They do like that extreme close up when they go into the uh, yeah the, the throat actually being slit. Uh, and then Vinny gets the road flare to the mouth, which is a precursor to Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two. And but I will say this about the guy who plays Vinny. One of the bad guys in Paul Abdul's Rush Rush music video <laughs> with Keanu Reeves. <laughs> How about that? Now, wasn't this scene was definitely just like we've got to add more depth? Unquestionably, because there's no bearing that they're not in the movie at all. Like, what 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 is the point of these characters? They're not on their so, way to anywhere. Somebody tried to tell me that this was in the original script, but this totally sees seems like something that was shot like the last day. We need to put. Two more deaths in there, and yeah. Now, well, I wouldn't be surprised because this is something that happens on in Jason Lives as well, which we'll see. Um, yes, we'll talk about next month. But here's the thing: I also want to say this about Duke, Pete, and Vinny, three people I just mentioned. In my opinion, ten out of ten on the unlikability, the unlikability scale. Ten out of ten for the for their own reasons. Get them out of here. Now, Vinny, Vinny gets the uh, road flare in the mouth, right? Yeah. Extremely annoying character. Yeah, I, I I do like that death, though. That's a great death. Yeah, that's good. We should yeah, see I think that's, that's, worth, that's worth having him in there, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, we talk about them being greasers, which just seems so out of left field. Why yeah. would you do that? But it is 1989. Of course, even then, well, in the terms of the film, it's 1985. Perhaps they were going to the leather bar. Perhaps... Friday the 13th, A New Beginning is progressive, and these are two homosexual characters, but it's never announced that they are. Maybe they're going to the same bar as the coach and Jesse from uh, Freddy's Revenge. You know, we don't know. Hello? Uh, I don't know. I think think they talk that they're on their way to meet some women in the beginning. Yeah, they they do. Yeah, they do. Some language Um, there, yeah. Okay. We we got, my God, we got to move on. There's still so many fucking characters. Yeah, let's keep pushing on. Unbelievable. I can't believe how many fucking characters in this fucking movie. I think he um, might have missed one, but I'm curious. But let's uh, keep going okay, here. we got Jake, of course, played by Jerry Pavlin. Now, Jake, the character who's got a, a bad stutter that confesses his feelings for Robin, gets a, uh, a slash down the face by Jason, quote-unquote Jason. And there's actually stills online if you care to see the, uh, the unedited uh, look of, of, this, of this death. Once again, another character that's introduced solely to have him offed two minutes later. Um, I don't have a lot to say about this character, guys. About uh, this is the one. This is the kid Jake. with the stutter, right? Yeah, that's really it, right? Yeah. He's got I, I, I I think what happened with him was I think Danny Steinman said, "I really want to get John Cryer for this role," and <laughs> and Frank Mancuso Jr. was like, "No, no, no, Danny, we got we got we have John Cryer at home. We have a John Cryer for you," and that's how he ended up getting cast. Mac. It, harmless character, just you know, like you said, thrown in there for the body count. But a uh, three of the ten. I think that that scene, factor. that scene's the scene's uncomfortable because you know, again, you're just like, uh, I want to feel for these characters, but it's an awkward situation, and then it's just such an awkward. This, is, <laughs> this whole movie's awkward. I know. But, uh, yeah, I feel bad for Jake, um, and he gets that cleaver to the head face. Oh, that's nothing. When when I noticed that. This is like the third or fourth death where we just see see Roy's hand with the weapon come down. We don't see yep. Roy as Jason at all. It's like, why aren't we showing... We know Jason's... At this point, we definitely know Jason's there killing people. Why aren't we just like showing him more? It's just always like the hand reveal. 
and that's I think it. they want to really. I, I never. I was like for well, a movie Mac, with Jason. It, rewatching this, I feel like they were also trying to say, well, maybe Tommy's the killer. It's just Tommy running around killing people. I agree with that. Oh, because they don't really show, yeah. I guess, Jason with the mask a lot. I, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so okay, all here's right. something I'll I need to it, talk about that. before we move do, on. Do those. you first? I wanted to say, do you first see him with the mask when he busts through that door? Yep. At the very end, when he busts through the door, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and at that point, you're still maybe you're like, well, maybe it's still Tommy because you haven't seen Tommy for thirty fucking minutes at this point in the movie. Well, um, not like he, he was a real talker. Okay. Time. Listen, guys, Jerry Pavlin was also in the movie Soul Man with C. Thomas Howell. For those of you who are young or have blocked it from your memory, this is literally the plot of Soul Man from 1987. I think. Here we go. Now, do you know what I'm talking oh about? God. Soul Man. Uh, Okay, here we go. To achieve, here we go. Listen, guys. To achieve his dream of attending Harvard, a pampered teen poses as a young black man to receive a full scholarship. Can you imagine a more dated movie (laughs) than Soul Man? Like that is unbelievable. I mean, they used to be on HBO all the time when I was a kid. Uh, Notably directed by, listen, guys. Notably directed by Steve Miner, who of course directed parts two and three of Friday Thirteenth. So. We don't need to talk about that anymore, ever again, actually. So let's move yeah, on to our next actor. Let's keep, let's keep trucking here through. Is a, here's, a, here's another great TV character actor and uh, another Halloweenies connection. Vernon Washington as George Winter. You know, this is another example of, I'm not having a lot of fun watching certain people die. And when we see, this is obviously Reggie's grandfather in the movie. And when we see him going through that window with like his eyes couched out, ah, it's just, <laughs> it's just not fun or anything there now like with a likable well, character again, and with a brutal death you know yeah oh well, absolute one on the likability oh, scale one. One, peak, uh, that peak scene when he when he sees yeah when he tells reggie like he can't go see demon and then reggie like reacts really badly and then he just kind of smiles and laughs and like calls him over and gives him a kiss and you're just like yeah, you're not excited at all when you see him come through that window. Uh, it, it's very str- such a strange. It's something that's really hard line to walk because I feel like in, in prior Friday films we're always like, oh, we want we wish they developed the characters more so that we cared more about their deaths. But then you have a situation like this where you do develop characters and you do like those characters that when they do die, you you're almost upset that they died, not like in a way that's that doesn't work for the movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're just yeah. like, Oh, well, why did you kill that guy? And, and so it's like, it's a very hard line to walk, to make, create characters that, uh, when they die, you feel for them, but not in a way that's like, Oh, you shouldn't have killed that character. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so the, it, it's, it's, it's rough. Yeah. The only question I have about this character is why Gramps is so adamant about him not seeing demon, but he, but he lets him hang out with all the, uh, troubled youth, of the the household. That is a great point. Maybe we'll get the answer in the reboot <laughs> when this movie's inevitably <laughs> yeah, right. redone with a with a with a different script. We gotta dive into the character of, of, of George Winter's family. You would you would you would be called. How about this for a title? Um, Winter of Discontent. Okay, we're gonna move wow. on. Um, <laughs> I got no reaction. We're going to move on to... Oh, something of note, though, for Vernon Washington. A lot of TV recurred on the Jeffersons, but uh, for me as a kid, I'm not sure if this is the same for the two of you, he was Otis in The Last Starfighter, directed by the original Michael Myers, Nick Castle. 
Oh, hell yeah, he is. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's the first thing I saw him yeah. in. So obviously, he was also a very likable character in that movie, too. So, Kind of playing the yeah. same kind of role. Definitely. Definitely. Like, I think yeah. that was, that yeah, was his bit. thing. Yeah. Okay, next character here. Okay, this is the ultimate non-character in a Friday the 13th movie. This is unbelievable. He actually doesn't even have a name in the movie itself. He just has a name in the credits. What? And that is Sonny Shields as Raymond Jeffroy. Do you have any idea who this is? Raymond Jeffroy. Is he the one who drove uh, Tommy to the hospital? No. I have no clue who you're talking about. He is the drifter. That shows oh, up. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then he's dead. And so we think maybe he's a Jason suspect, right, for a couple minutes? Right. Yes, absolutely. And then he's, he's a Jason he, suspect. He spies on Tina and Eddie having sex and then just gets stabbed in the stomach. I mean, what a non-entity of a character. I forgot he was, as <laughs> I, I was watching again, I forgot that he was in it. Like, then when he showed up, I was like, oh, yeah. And, oh, why do they have him there? Oh, he's just there to get killed. It's it's a non-character. Nothing else to say. No, no, No big career for this actor either. Poetically enough. Okay, next character. This is like peak sleaze. Maybe in an affectionate way. Bobby DeSimone as Billy. I mean, we see this guy. The first time we see him is him reading a porno mag in the front seat of the van that's taking Tommy to the facility. I mean, right off the bat, (laughs) we're laying down the groundwork. This guy's doing coke. He's listening to Harry Manfredini's heavy metal in his car. He's just keeps calling screaming his girlfriend's name can you imagine me like a next door neighbor to this diner and hearing this guy just screaming out lana over and over again um now this <laughs> as, opposed, as opposed I, I, to the george winter death his death is actually welcomed the axe to the back of the head wonderful i love his quote uh, the forecast is cloudy in the mountains sunny in the valley and snow flurries up your nose and snow flurries up your nose and I'm guessing, like, he's the cool guy of Crystal Lake. <laughs> That's, he drives a cool car. This guy, wearing a leather jacket. Up, if somebody can look this up while I'm talking, find out how old he was in this movie so I can feel really old. <laughs> um, but something else about this guy's career. Mac, do you have anything to say about him? Did, did I say it all? It, no, I have nothing to say. Uh, the guy is still a sleaze bag, yeah. and okay. you know, yeah, is a welcome death. I do like the way that his death is shot, where you see the axe hit his head, you see his hand quickly, you know, like hit all the drugs off of the thing. Yeah. It's like it's such a quick, like bam, 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 like the way that they shoot that scene. It was. I almost took a picture. I almost took a little video to post it, but um, yeah, nothing, nothing. Like for to film say schools, like you show Billy. the you show like the psycho framing, and you show the uh, the framing of Billy's death in the, it's like, in the well, beginning. We've got to set up the coke on the bottom of the uh, of the car so that Lana can well, <laughs> find it. Well, De Simone worked with Danny Steinman previously in Savage Streets, and this is perfect. He appeared in Angel Three: The Final Chapter. As porn director. <laughs> so, <laughs> perfect casting. He must have um, been... I wonder if he took inspiration from Danny Steinman, or I'm sorry, Danny Stone, for his role in Angel 3. Yeah, I apologize. Danny Stone. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I do apologize. Did anybody get oh, the age in, of this actor? He was in... He oh, was in he, oh, wait, I'm sorry. Listen, he was 39 in this. <laughs> so, he was I'm my age in this movie. He was my age in this movie. So, there we go. He was in Chatterbox as the cab driver. Have you guys ever seen Chatterbox? Uh, no. no, it's a borderline adult cinema. Features Rip Taylor as well about a woman who finds out that her uh, her vagina can speak, and not only speak, can sing, and becomes famous. For oh it. my God! Wow. Moving, moving on. I don't even know how we 
transition from that, but um, and this is another brief one. Rebecca Wood as Lana Ardsley. She's the waitress that no. Billy is calling to. What Mac? Justin, not brief. This is a oh, you're character. right. You are right. I'm setting Mac up again, <laughs> Mac, because Lana can speak to cats. We have Incredible. another character, uh, and this is. I know that this is why they worked Billy in because they were like, oh well, we have to have. Billy, so that we can get to Lana, because we need Lana to speak to a cat in this film, um, and who gets an axe to the chest, and that's also another. Even watching this, the unedited version of this movie, uh, aka the theatrical release of the movie, it still seems like it was edited for TV. That that death, you know, yeah. they just kind of show it after the aftermath of it. Um, but I do also like when she for zero reason it shows her breasts or says it's showtime I, like well, Robin Williams, story showtime there. and i wanted to Ms. say Doubtfire. that this has to be the most <laughs> gratuitous use of breasts in the friday the 13th series so far and possibly in the entire series well do you know why do you know what the story is behind that scene i do not what is it what why is she it? says it's showtime it's um something i think bob fossey says in all that jazz played by roy scheider it was an allusion to that scene, apparently, of, of him looking in the mirror and saying, it's showtime, oh, which gosh. is also alluded to, of course, in Mrs. Doubtfire, when he says, it's showtime. That's why I just... <laughs> it's the Friday the 13th film that. school. <laughs> Sorry, Mike, Vanderbilt, what were you saying? I was saying it's the Friday the 13th film school, all the references to previous uh, uh, cinema. Yeah. So, unlikeability factor, she's a non-character. I got nothing for her. Billy is a 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10 on the unlikeability scale. 10 out of 10. Yeah. Okay, let me run through these next two before we get to the, the man of the hour here. Rick Mancini, as Mayor Cobb, comes in, just gives it his all for the three minutes he's in. Not a lot to say. He's the policeman in Ghostbusters that pops up. Um, I think it's at yeah. Rick Moranis' apartment, right? Uh, that's all I got for him. Any comments? I'm giving each of you six seconds for Rick Mancini comments. Please. Mike Vanderbilt. Memorable performance. Really like what he did. Yeah, Mac. Yeah, I love that ashes sequence. Oh, when he says Jason's been cremated. Yeah. When he takes the ashes and he goes, here's Jason, you know. <laughs> I got you, Jason, right here. I got you, Jason, right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's classic. Um, clear, which also cements the fact that this that Ken Pritzelik is definitely in New Jersey. <laughs> um, this guy getting elected as, as the mayor, of course. Um, great accent. Okay, and then we've got Jerry Fields as Anita, Demon's girlfriend who... Of course, mm-hmm. improvised the memorable ooh baby and gets her throat slit once again off screen. One of the many off screen deaths in this movie. Seems like a nice, oh, nice chick. I think one. She's a one. She's very likable. Yeah. Not, nothing unlikable about her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. The last character of this <laughs> goddamn movie. Best for last. Miguel A. Nunez Jr.'s Demon Winter. I would argue the most successful actor to come out of this movie. Would you two agree? I can't argue with that at all. Uh, Joanna Man? Forget Juana about Man. it. Star, the star, he was the than, titular Joanna Man. Other than Corey Feldman, I guess, right? With Corey Feldman was kind of just like a throw-in. Yeah, that, that's. I would say like he comes out of the final chapter, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. I mean, we're talking, we talked about Return of the Living Dead. He was a regular on a lot yeah. of shows in the 90s and aughts. He was kind of, he was on Living Single. I remember the first thing I saw him as a kid was Living Single. With that Queen was a Latifah. good show. That was a good show. 
and he was on that for a couple episodes as a love interest. He's a, he's a um, character actor. Definitely. He's right? been a bunch yeah. of stuff. He was also mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Tour of Duty, which was this uh, good war show. I think it was on ABC in the late 80s. He was a main character on that show. Um, Yeah, good career. He's still popping up and stuff today. So he's easily the most successful. And also does the just as much with uh, his role as Rick Mancini does as Mayor Cobb. Uh, Mac, what do you think about Demon in this movie? I think Demon is definitely uh, touring and, and clearly making a lot of money because he offers Pam a taco, an egg roll, or a slice of pizza. I mean, they've got it all in this van. They've got all of the food possible. Um, no, I really like Demon as a character. I like the relationship with Reggie. It's it's not what you expect. I actually think it's really endearing. Like, I like, I just, in, in such a short period of time, I think you really like those characters, and then they are taken away from us, um, sadly, uh, via kneecap and then uh, through the chest. I, I, I love that death. I think that's, that's such a jarring thing. That's one of the most memorable uh, deaths in the franchise for me. But, uh, yeah, I liked, I liked Demon. Mike, Mike Vanderbilt, I know you took, his, you took your nickname from him. <laughs> Number one, my favorite character in the film, one of my favorite characters in the Friday the 13th franchise. Probably one of the only characters in the Friday the 13th franchise that I would want to watch a standalone film about him on tour, you know, hanging out yeah. with Cameo, maybe playing with Shalimar, maybe did a brief stint with Mickey Free. Uh, he's kind of he's kind of rough on Anita, though, when he says he's you're going to get it now, bitch. Like, I don't know. But yeah, I don't know if that was coming from. My conscience likes to think that that was like a playful, I'm going to get you now, as opposed to I'm going to beat the hell out of you or something like that. Just <laughs> be a different yeah, take that comes Dina, out of nowhere, obviously. yeah. Well, it's because the characters in this movie are all kind of shitty. That's why I'm like, uh, I don't That's know. That's controversial, maybe, yeah. Who knows? So maybe I, you got to maybe, maybe keep on, an eye on Demon. Based on what we know, likability, honestly, if he's just joking around with his girlfriend, playing around, I, I'm saying a one. Absolutely. I'm saying a one. Now, maybe he's a little troublemaker. doesn't mean you can't be a likable troublemaker. That's my, that's my take No, on, I think he's probably a harmless troublemaker. Like, yeah. He's probably a bad influence because he obviously he, he does drugs. He, he eats enchiladas. Eats enchiladas. Uh, but, you know, people must like him because when you've been around as long as he has, you get things. What better way to move on to our next category? Should we do like a nice little ceremonial farewell to that goddamn section? It's unbelievable how many characters are in this movie and how many of those characters are absolutely pointless. <laughs> and we spent more time. We spent more time on some of these characters than any of the writers credited for this movie did. And I, and I mean that sincerely. <laughs> I really mean that sincerely. Um, let's move on to our next section, which we, of course, just uh, took from last season because the soundbite's too good, and that is uh, great graphics. <laughs> what do you know? I beat my score. <laughs> okay, so after working on the previous... Two Friday entries, Martin Becker uh, takes over as the main makeup person here. He'd go on to to work on effects in some capacity for the next three Friday entries, as well as a couple of the upcoming uh, Elm Street entries in the late 80s. So I believe he designed the original Freddy Krueger makeup. Yeah. I mean, he's he's been involved in the genre 
just as much, honestly, as like a, a, a Tom Savini, for instance, especially going forward, whereas Tom Savini doesn't do as much makeup for the last, you know, 30 years. Martin Becker is still involved. In- oh, no, not Martin Becker. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go talk about Martin Becker. I fucked up. Oh, wait, so it's not Martin Becker? I thought Martin Becker was Well, no, Martin Becker's person. on it, but uh, David Biller is involved oh, as well. Okay, there you go. There you go. But anyway, but no, Martin Becker still is very involved in the horror genre. Um, and unfortunately, as we've talked throughout this episode, a lot of his work was cut yeah, out. Yeah, I was going to say. You know, we, don't, we're not, we don't see the Robin, the Jake, and a couple other deaths that uh, we otherwise would have seen. But it's just too bad that Paramount didn't save all this footage. I know they could not have necessarily foreseen DVDs and everything else, but you know, between this and especially a new blood, it's just too bad. We're just not going to see these scenes in their full gory as it were. But I, I wouldn't count that out because, and this is something I love about that era of filmmaking. Cause these days special features are used to sell DVDs and Blu-rays. So there's, you don't really have that, that quest for lost material anymore or you read rumors for years online about this thing that everybody says was shot or other people say no it wasn't shot and then it pops up like there's still a chance that yeah. this stuff is sitting in a vault in paramount somewhere because they just didn't care about these movies no they i just, know they just tossed it away somewhere well hopefully somebody finds it in a warehouse or something like that mac any comments about the the makeup in this uh you know it's fine i, I again it's sad i think the, the thing that the most memorable bit is probably the belt sequence i think uh kind of shines mm-hmm. but that's just because so much of it was cut you know which is sad because i feel like this is a slasher film that's what you go to these movies for <laughs> yeah so why are you cutting the violence it's so bizarre to me when they do that but um that's the MPA. yeah I, uh, I, yeah it's it's it, it was a rough a rough go for this film because uh it could have done with some more violence and and less 10,000 characters. If you're going to have 10,000 characters to kill and then not show their deaths, what's the point? <laughs> That's a good point. Especially when they're, once again, just non-entities in these movies. All right, well, let's yeah. move on to our next category. Speaking of murders, um, it's called Help! He's killing me! He's killing me! So despite the cuts, there are still some memorable death scenes in this movie. We've alluded to a couple of our favorites already, but let's lead off with with Mac. Mac, what for you is the most memorable, effective uh, death scene? Funny enough, uh, it's not a Jason kill. <laughs> I guess none of them really are. <laughs> but it's uh, Vic. Vic axing Joey is the thing I remember the most from this movie. I think it's so abrupt and just just straight up violent like right at the beginning and then seeing the post joey body that was just the most jarring thing to me as a kid i was just like oh my god i can't believe they're doing Mm -hmm. this right out the gate i think it's at like the 20 minute marker to be honest but like yeah it's uh it's still that to me that and and the belt is a close second i understand that um mike vanderbilt I think there's a lot of great effects. I think there's a lot of great deaths. Like, obviously, Joey. Uh, the road flare to the mouth on uh, Vinny. And the belt, as we discussed. But, uh, you know, we talked about it earlier. I think so many of the deaths are so mean-spirited. And it's not a lot of fun. And the Friday the 13th movie is supposed to be a lot of fun. And I think the yeah. first time you really get uh, a sense of that is with Violet's death. With... Uh, Jason, quote unquote, stalking her as the 
the song plays. And maybe not the effect of the death, but everything leading up to the death is what makes that the most memorable death in Friday the 13th, uh, New Beginning for me. I think for me, it, the Joey death is, is the most memorable, even though, except for the aftermath, I mean, there's no effects. It's just they, they cut away when the, the axe is going into him. You know, actually see the axe going into him. In terms of the, in terms of a Jason, I would actually say, once again, something you don't see, it's the head slippers to the eyes. I think that really has uh, stayed with me after all these years, even even more than Eddie's belt death. So, yeah, funny enough, as much as we complained about the MPA cutting stuff out, like the most memorable deaths are the least goriest in some ways. I guess those would be my my top two right there. Hey, let's move on to our next section. As a section that we call, he's still there. All right, so this is kind of a twofold question. So the first question, Mac, is Roy dead? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he gone. Mike Vanderbilt, is Roy dead? <laughs> yeah, he sure looked dead, but, you know, his eyes were closed, so maybe he's sleeping. That's a great point, and maybe it's not even Roy. Who the hell is that guy? Mac, my next question, is, this, is it the spirit of Jason that has taken over Tommy, or is Tommy just crazy now i think we're meant to believe at the end of this film uh via spoon feeding us the 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 exposition uh (laughs) that tommy has gone crazy and is now taking up the jason mantle for no reason mike vanderbilt well could you please repeat the question is the spirit of Jason still alive, or is Tommy just gone crazy and is the killer hmm. now? God, this is a good question because having read that theory about the oh, spirit of Jason, that's right. That goddamn. Oh yeah, um, definitely. Roy was. <laughs> it has to be the spirit of Jason. It has to be. I don't understand <sighs> why why Tommy would turn. I don't know why he would. Maybe it's kind of like Batman being afraid of bats so then he becomes <laughs> batman like tommy's yeah. afraid of he's a scared of jason so like he becomes jason and maybe he becomes a superhero like maybe in an alternate reality an alternate timeline he becomes like a good jason fighting for peace and justice in the american way i disagree with that <laughs> <laughs> i i think um, what do you think justin i think that it's 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 been established that he's been severely traumatized and has major issues. And I think this final uh, situation, as we want to call it, with Roy has just pushed him completely over the edge. So I believe that we're, we're supposed to believe that he's just beyond the point of any return and is, has now become a, a full-on psychopath. That's my take on it. I don't think there's any supernatural elements involved. I think that while he conquered Jason, in terms of being afraid of Jason, that he's now just become a killer afraid of nobody. That's that's my take on it, and well, that's no more. Sad. And Jason lives. Friday Thirteenth Part Six coming up next. Um, very deep, everybody. <laughs> Once again, way more thought, I'm sure, than any of the writers but or directors. I, put I, I think we need to ask one more question. Oh boy, is do you think Jason is dead in this one? At this point, I do think Jason Voorhees is dead. Yes, obviously dead. not creamy. Yeah, 
No. Mike, you think he's dead? I think that I think that they buried him in the same clothes that he was wearing with the mask and the machete. Um, it, it's so when you think about that kind of thing, it's so dumb. You're like, I mean, doesn't he come back in six? And I will get to that, but it's just like the beginning of this movie where they like uncover the grave and no, and no. it's like six Jason like wearing the clothes. I know, but in the beginning of this, it's like Jason's wearing the clothes, he's got the mask, and he, they no, he buried doesn't. him with the machete. Oh, in, the beginning the dream. Of no, in this movie, yeah. in this movie, yeah. in the beginning, in the dream sequence, in the beginning. No, six is, well, six is obviously silly, deliberately. It's not, we'll, we'll get into it, obviously. He doesn't have a mask already in part six. Okay. Yeah. I can't believe I'm saying, saying this, this guys. Movie. I can't believe I'm saying this. But we're going to move on to, to the final chapter and our final thoughts. But now, Jason's reign of terror is over. Okay, so we're going to do this on a scale of one to five hockey masks. With the, of course, hockey masks with the blue marks. We've got to make, be careful here. So I've always defended all the Friday the 13th movies by saying, well, you know, they're never really boring, right? There's always something to talk about with these movies as opposed to some of the later Halloween entries and whatnot. But having rewatched this, especially coming off of rewatching and dissecting those first four movies, I don't have a lot to applaud this movie about. I mean, you could say that it, it was commendable that they did try to do something different by having a different killer, but it's, it's executed so poorly, and we've discussed that ad nauseum throughout this episode of just there could have been a lot more mystery, and they just they blew it. They just the writing let it down, and then obviously the direction. Let This Down by Danny Steinman. For as many characters that, that appear in this movie, so many of them are either unlikable or forgettable or both. I mean, the only people you really find yourself rooting for are Reggie and Pam. And then the other people, even if you like them, you know, you haven't seen them for 45 minutes. <laughs> like, and the pacing of this movie is really strange. We talked about the characters that pop up here and there that seem like they're coming in off of like blue velvet, you know, and then you got people coming in from it. It's just, it's such a hodgepodge of a story. John that, Waters. Yeah, John Waters. But I wish this was more like John Waters in a way. I mean, at least yeah. there's those are compelling oddball characters as opposed to just kind of annoying characters. And I think that's a major difference between what John Waters does and what Danny Steinman tries to do here. And so I have to give this only two hockey uh, two excuse me two machetes what oh my god I'm losing my mind two hockey masks out of five um as of this point easily the worst of the first five movies uh mike vanderbilt what do you think well before i get into it i did want to point out something that i've been wanting to bring up for every episode these early fighter 13th movies actually all the way up to seven feature great uh vintage ambulances <laughs> and this one has a great 1964 Cadillac ambulance, a Miller Meteor Classic 42. Sure. And I think it's just a great car. So if I were to call Friday the 13th the final chapter, mm. the quintessential Friday the 13th movie, if you wanted to show future generations or anybody an example of what a Friday the 13th movie is and should be and was, it's Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Mm. Now, on the flip side, if I wanted to show somebody what people think a Friday the 13th movie is, I would show them Friday the 13th, 
A New Beginning. Mm. It's filled with unlikable characters. I wanted to comment, even the nurse at the end of the movie who's filing her nails, she has no dialogue, but she immediately comes off as unlikable. Mm. (laughs) And I don't know if that's a testament or a detriment uh, on uh, Danny Steinman's part. That said, it's not boring. It's rewatchable. Mm-hmm. It's hard to sit and watch in one sitting. I, not in one sitting, but I think it's a good background movie because there's a death that happens every five, ten minutes. So it is enjoyable in a sense that, like I said, it's, it's not boring. But all that being said, I would give it three, no, two and a half. I'd give it the half. I'd give it the machete. Two hockey masks and a machete. Gotcha, gotcha. The, the, not, not not a great Friday the 13th movie, but an interesting part of the history and the lore. Gotcha. Mac, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. I think there's a lot of missteps, a lot of missed opportunities. I do also agree, though, that it is, it is entertaining. It is not boring. I think that you're just kind of bewildered, but it's not it's not a boring watch. And I feel like it does move. And that's probably because they said they needed a death every five minutes. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there's there's far worse uh, Friday the 13th films on the way. So I'm going to give this uh, two hockey masks, one with blue checks, one with the red check, and maybe a, a red check dream. Uh, on top of those two, mm. uh, not a half, but uh, just a, just a, the inkling of what could have been with the franchise had they moved forward with Tommy being the new Jason and Reggie being mm. the new protagonist. Um, mm. Yeah, I really w- it's it's interesting when you have movies like this where they take a chance and then they just they go such a total sideways weird. <laughs> direction with the next movie i almost just totally ignore the path of this movie um so i'm excited to talk about that one next but yeah for me it's going to be a solid two stars it's it's one star for the great score by manfredini and the other star for demon and uh and some of the like more (laughs) likable co uh co-stars of this one like reggie and i i want to add one more point that i think if Danny Steinman had maybe been allowed to script, having uh, write the script for this movie, because most his his credit mostly comes from writing stuff on the fly. Yeah. Uh, after if they had allowed Danny Steinman to write a script, who I think has a kind of an off kilter sense of humor, that it might have been a better, funnier, almost borderline parody of these films than it ended up being. Well, that leads us to something else. When it comes to director intent, right? Because I have to ask the both of you this question. Uh, Mac, um, does Danny Steinman's Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning, accomplish its goals better than Martin Scorsese does with 2019's The Irishman? Jesus. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. This is a tough one. I'm sitting here thinking I, about this. I think that I don't think so. I think the Irishman is actually better in this sense. I think the what the Irishman sets out to do uh 
I think they do mostly um, better than this film. I think this film, I think Friday the Thirteenth Five is just a, it's just a mess. I mean, you okay. just take that that the ending itself is just so sloppy. Okay. Whereas you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't need to go <laughs> too much into it. Yeah, I'm not going to go into a real, but but yeah, I think that Irishman in this in this respect is better. Mike Vanderbilt. As much as I appreciate Danny Steinman, the auteur, I <laughs> I think I'm going to have to go with The Irishman is better than Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. I think this is, I think The Irishman, as much as we've made fun, is unquestionably better. I can't believe both of you like kind of pause and like, hmm, let me think about my thoughts for a second here. I, the Irishman is, is like Goodfellas to The Irishman. I mean, it's so much, The Irishman is a good movie. I just think it's but far you said, superior to this. And, and, but, here's the thing. but you were I think saying... Martin, you said a no, 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 no. But here's the thing, guys. Come on. Come on. Martin Scorsese accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish much better than what Danny Steinman and, and Paramount Pictures and the writers set out to accomplish in this. They were still trying to make a good movie, but they, but they were incapable of doing so because it, it just was not a good movie. To be and fair, like, I don't think they, they, they knew what it. to set out... I don't think they knew what to set out to accomplish... Which and is even maybe, worse. maybe that, Which but maybe worse. that shows like it's a perfect example of oh, not no. knowing I, what listen, the hell you want to do. Scorsese was far more successful with his movie than Danny Steinman was with a new beginning. I, I, that's that's my demonstrative take. It's <laughs> just unquestionable. Now, that question may be a little more skewed next month, or the answer. Well, it'll be a little more of an interesting take next month. Um, well, the good news is this episode, as long as it is, is still 20, 20 minutes shorter than The Irishman for anybody <laughs> taking count out there. So, um, but please, uh, please be sure to leave us a rating and review on wherever you listen to this episode. They really do help. In addition to the other fine podcasts and Consequence Podcasts Network, uh, especially the Losers Club that Mac is on, and we should be promoting psychoanalysis with Jen from Horror Virgin and Laura and, and the Losers Club, I should say, and Laura, who's been a guest on this podcast many times. They launched a, a great new podcast. I listened to the first episode. It kind of delves into uh, mental health and horror movies. As a matter of fact, I think a great episode for them would be this movie <laughs> to, to dive into. You want to talk about trauma oh, totally. and, and mental health, right? So, yeah, c- congratulations to them. I'm looking forward to listening to more of those episodes. And we will be back, of course, next month with Tom McLaughlin's Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, or Jason Li- And once again, another title conundrum that we'll have to figure out next month. But yeah, until- it's a big one. It's a big oh, yeah. one next month. Until then. Bye, 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 bye. Bye, everybody. Consequence Podcast Network.